Hello, everybody, and welcome to the 215th episode of MTG Fast Finance, the podcast that's filling out the spec box in our jammies. MTG Fast Finance is your weekly podcast covering the world of Magic the Gathering, finance, collection management, and speculation. I'm your host, James Chilcott, a.k.a. at MG Critic on Twitter. My co-host this week is Travis Allen, a.k.a. at Wizard Bumpin', and we're here to help you folks make and save money playing our favorite game, Magic the Gathering. Good evening, everyone. Uh, good evening, James. Glad to be here and looking forward to sharing some valuable information with all of you. Our show is produced by mtgprice.com, the leading MTG finance community. Sign up today at mtgprice.com to track your specs, chat on Discord, and me, read articles by some of the best financial minds in the hobby. MTG Fast Finance is proudly sponsored by Cool Stuff Inc., where you can find all sorts of cool, nerdy stuff in stock, including all the best in Magic the Gathering singles, sealed product, and a plethora of other collectibles. Use the promo code FINANCE5 during checkout at CoolStuffInc.com to save 5% off your order and support this podcast, as well as Cool Stuff, who is still shipping during the crisis. So take advantage of getting some sweet board games and magic cards up on into your house. Uh, Travis, what's on the agenda this week? This week, James, we have a show in... Uh, oh, wait, we have to have this conversation again. <laughs> Four to six parts, depending on your definition of what a uh, segment is. Uh, segment one is our MTGO metagame week in review. We'll look at the latest events on MTGO to give us an idea of what the format looks like. Formats. Segment two are top paper movers, cards that have moved in price on in paper this week. Segment 2B or 3. Uh, is it segment 2B or not 2B? I'm not sure. Is our top MTGO movers cards that have moved the most on Moto lately. Segment three, our topic of the week. We are joined this week by Dan Fournier to discuss the full Ikoria spoilers. What's going to matter where? And we might dip into the secret layer Fetchland drama, mini drama, if we, if we remember, if we have time. Segment the next segment is the MTGO cards to watch. James will run through some cards that he's got his eye on uh, to look out for on that platform. And then finally, our last segment of the week, our paper cards to watch. We'll both share with you some picks that uh, might might do something for you. So let's jump into the Metago. Metago. <laughs> MTG. The Metago. The Metago. Yeah, that works. The Metago. <laughs> Uh, I see we have Pioneer and two Moderns. Yeah, so the first big tournament um, is the Pioneer Super Qualifier from April 11th. Top eight there, first and second were Demir Inverter decks. So this is the future that people were scared of, I guess, when we were all freaking out about Inverter two months ago. Uh, these days it seems to top eight on a regular basis, but this is the first top eight I've looked at in a little while where it seemed uh, more dominant than usual. The third place deck was a Sultai mid-range de- value deck with Uros and Jace Friends Prodigies, Ashiok Nightmare Muse times two in the main, Thoughtseize, Traverse, etc. Uh, fourth place uh, was the most interesting deck of the tournament and drove one of the big uh, movers on Magic Online this week. Might be something that should be triggering a look over at the foils of the uh, one of the key cards in paper for the longer term. Uh, it is a black-white demonic pack deck. The list includes three Gideon of the Trials, three Thought Seas, two Final Payment, one Flicker of Fate, four Demonic Pact, four Doom Foretold, three History of Banalia, three Oath of Kaya, two Starfield of Nyx, four The Birth of Melitus, 
two the eldest reborn four treacherous blessing and three trial of ambition with 22 lands so a whole bunch of enchantments and some gideon of the trials demonic pact action i like to see demonic pact that's exciting and it's actually not the first time we've seen that card floating around in an event before um although it's certainly never become a staple it's nice to see the final payment uh demonic pack thing that we mentioned last may on a cast uh that's the uh uh ravnica allegiance uh oh. sorry I'm impressed that you can pick that up by set symbol because I see that and I go, that's new, one of the new Ravnica's, but I couldn't. My tell vision's you which also one. good enough that I read the RNA in the bottom left corner. Uh, white and black, white and oh, black yeah, instant destroy there. target creature. As an additional cost is this to cast the spell, you either pay five life or sack a creature or an enchantment. So of course, if you have a negative enchantment, you want to get rid of. This is a way to get reasonably efficient removal um, and get rid of that demonic pack that you've used up and don't want to die to. So between between that, flicker, two copies of Final Payment, one Flicker of Fate, and three getting of the Trials, you have a number of ways to get rid of your Pact. And then I guess Doom Foretold also allows you to do that, because as a four of in the deck, you get to sack a non-land, non-token permanent uh, during your upkeep. So that gives you even more outs on your Demonic Packs. Um, you can also get rid of your... The- Previously used Oath of Kaya's and your History of Benalia's. Starfield of Nyx lets you recycle all of this stuff. Um, Birth of Miletus, Eldest Reborn, Treacherous Blessing uh, are all, you know, other things that you can get rid of. That's pretty sexy deck coming out of nowhere. The getting of the trials is especially cute because you only have to hit the trigger once. Like if you have the Gideon emblem with Gideon demonic pack trigger so as you lose the game gideon prevents it and then that's it it's not a static ability so if you lose the gideon later on and the emblem turns off you've already dodged the enchantment the demonic pack the one time so uh also all right buddy i got tested at 2013 vision a couple months ago how about you (laughs) i'm I'm real high too like despite the fact that i've been working on a computer for a long long time might be at 2030 or something well, no, okay, so wait, lower is better. 2020, if you go below 2020, if you go to 2019, 2018, that's better than normal. I, I'm laying claim to whatever makes worse. me like superhero status vision. Like I can, I can. Okay, that's like t- I can 25. see through people's clothes. That's like, all right, that's like 20 negative four. <laughs> like that's like, it's unmeasurable <laughs> essentially. Uh, all right, so fifth place was a mono green deck on the back of Castle Garen Briggs and Nykthos Shrine to Nyx. Uh, sixth was the mono black aggro deck that's been around forever. Ditto seventh, ditto eighth. So Pioneer hmm. mostly looking as expected with that one rogue black that's, white deck. That's a big surge in mono black decks for a format that saw those completely disappear for a, a while. couple months it's been, ago. It's been on the comeback trail for a while, though. I mean, it looked like it was going to disappear when they got uh, caught with bannings, I think not once, but twice, if I'm not mistaken. Um well, they lost Smuggler's yeah. Copter. It was they lost Smuggler's Copter, and uh, both of us, me more so than you, were dubious of its ability to hang. It it persisted beyond that. And then I think it was the introduction of Inverter that really pushed it out. 
because they had no way of keeping up or interacting profitably with that deck. I believe that is how that happened. So to see Inverter doing well and Mono Black still putting three copies into the top eight is a bit surprising to me. If I have my history correct, I might not. It's been doing like, it's popped up in other top eights we've looked at recently, um, but there certainly was a ebb and a flow to it. Uh, all right, so moving right along, yeah. we had two uh, larger modern tournaments. There was the Modern Showcase Challenge and the Modern Super Qualifier. I, I'm assuming Showcase Challenge is a bigger deal, so let's tackle that one first. Uh, in Modern, you were looking at um, Uro Urza in first place. Not a huge surprise. The combination of those cards and <laughs> Emery Lurker of the Lock, etc., Deck is in Arkham's Astrolab. Deck is rocking a lot of power. Uh, various forms of Urza, uh, including Teamer, uh, Green Blue, and Grixis, are all top eighting on a semi regular basis. Um, there's an Amulet Titan, Dried of the Legion Grove, Primeval Titan, Azusa, Azusa Lost But Seeking, Summoner's Pack, etc., in second place there. Uh, the Another Ice Fang Uro uh, without Urza, so more of a green blue ramp deck with Wilderness Reclamation in third place. Um, that's yeah, that's 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 more like a green blue. That that's almost mono blue, uh, instant based deck that splashes green for Wilderness the Wilderness Reclamation Nexus combo, and then Ice Fang yeah. and Uro. That is that is misleading at first yeah. glance. Yeah, certainly a different deck than, than the Urza thing, uh, coming at things from a completely different angle. Very interested to see a top three finish in Modern with Wilderness Reclamation. I've got plenty of foils that will be, <laughs> if paper ever comes back, be in a real sweet position. But Modern got a real shot in the arm, I feel like, from <laughs> from COVID, frankly, because, you know, the format, people were playing the format in paper, you know, at the end of last year, but it, you know, we saw the price movement decline significantly. There was a, a card or two once every few weeks we would discuss, but you know, compared to Pioneer, it was severely lagging. But now on Moto, it seems like it's much easier. It's so much easier to just play both formats. I feel like on Moto than it was in paper. Um, that you know, the, the formats really, I think, got much more legs now than it would have had otherwise. Yeah. Fourth place is a blast from the past, Bluetron, um, with like mere battle spheres and sundering titans and worm coil engines and so forth. Fifth place was Dredge. Sixth place was Neoform uh, combo. Seventh place was Humans, and eighth place was Neoform combo. So, bit of a insurgency from the Neoform side of things. And then over in the Super Qualifier, by comparison. Top was Mono Red, uh, the white-red version that runs Helixes and Boros Charms. Second place was Uro Planeswalkers, so Bant Planeswalkers with Uro Jaces in both forms of Teferi. Uh, Uro just everywhere. Um, and then you've got a Teamer Uro Urza with Renin 6, Emery Lurker of the Lock, Gilded Goose, 3 Uro Titan of Nature's Wrath, and 4 Urza Lord High Artificer. Seeing enough Gilded Gooses across the board, as long as Urza stays unbanned in this format, I think both Emery and Gilded Goose have a very good chance of getting there. And 
You have to, you said, did you say as long as Uro stays unbanned? Urza. So you think there's a link between Urza and Gilded yes, Goose? Yes, because Gilded Goose. Like they're, they're a bond. Yeah, because Gilded Goose's artifacts tap for <laughs> blue under Urza, right? All those, uh, Ikori is all about, you know, humans and creatures bonding. So here's here's the modern bond. It's Urza bonded with yeah, the goose. The, the, goose's, the goose's food tokens being artifacts is the key there. And then, yeah, I can buy that. Like Gilded Goose get, ramps you into Urza, and then later on, any further gooses give you an additional artifact. And Emery artifact. lets you switch up food tokens for whatever artifacts in the graveyard that you need back. Mm-hmm. Yeah. So then fourth place was the green-red mid-range Ponza Brew that we've seen, still running three Clothis, God of Destiny, four Magus of the Moon, etc. Uh, that one's been very consistent performer. Dredge in fifth place in that mm-hmm. uh, top eight as well. And then you have uh, Niv-Mizzet, five-color Niv-Mizzet in sixth. So also a fairly consistent performer. Uh, another Urza Emery brew that had, had made room for Thassa's Oracle and four Underworld Breach. So this is coming at things from a slightly different angle. Underworld Breach, of course, uh, applies to non-land cards, so you can use it to cycle all these zero-casting cost artifacts. Arkham's Asp Lab, Engineered Explosives, Everflowing Chalice, Grinding Station, Mishra's Bobble, and Mox Amber. Of course, Grinding Station isn't a zero-casting cost artifact, but does let you fool around with your artifacts. Um, <laughs> Urza. Urza is questionable. Uh, and then... Yeah, so you... The combo there is cute, because with the Underworld Breach in play, you play you exile three cards from your graveyard to put underworld breach in or i'm sorry with underworld breach in the play you cast everflowing chalice from your graveyard which is for zero plus the three cards that it costs for underworld breach and then you sacrifice the zero mana everflowing chalice with your grinding station to put the top three cards of your library into your graveyard and then when you play Chalice again, it untaps good grinding station. So basically grinding station plus Everflowing Chalice or any zero mana artifact lets cool. you just Yeah, turn you can put your entire deck in your graveyard if you wanted to. Uh I mean you don't want to if you have Underworld Breach, if you plan on casting any of those cards, but it does let you just keep digging until you have what yeah, you want. You've got there. Urza, Emery, and three to fairy time reveler to make sure people can't mess with what you're doing on your turn. Mm-hmm. And then eighth place is, was Goblins. Gross. So all in all, fun, healthy looking formats. Lots of semi-broken stuff going on, but it seems to be... I mean, one of the interesting things is if you increase the power curve, it certainly lops off about the likelihood that a bunch of older cards will get played. But if you give us enough new powerful cards, then maybe they just end up balancing each other out. Yeah, or at least it's, you know... It takes a little while before people figure out which one is the really busted one and you have a, a wild looking format in the meantime. And then, you know, if you gave us 20 busted new cards, uh, eventually you just pair off the top two that are too far outside of that band. And now you have 18 cool new powerful a- cards. I will say that modern looks like a lot of fun right now. And it's Pi- Pioneer is good, too, but it's almost a shame that Pioneer is drawing people away from Modern because on its own right, uh, Modern's looking pretty pretty, pretty good at the moment, especially if you were to toss Arkham's Astrolab and Urza out. It feels like you'd have uh, a really yep. cool format. All right, moving right along here to our top movers. We'll start in paper. Magus of the Moon from the aforementioned green-red Ponza deck. Uh, 
Iconic Masters copies going from 850 to 11, almost a 30% gain. Skullbriar, The Walking Grave, which I believe we talked about last week um, as being uh, all sorts of busted with the Ozolith in Commander, uh, going from about 8 to $11. This is the original Commander version uh, for a 37, 38% gain. Pemmin's Aura is a combo with Zoxara. It goes infinite pretty much uh, as soon as she can uh, tap for the first time. Pemmenzora going from $7 to $11 for 58% gains. Uh, and then Basalt Monolith from Commander Anthology going from just about $4 to $8 for just about 100% gains on the back of Kinnon uh, Bonder Prodigy being revealed, uh, meaning that all of your monoliths, uh, Grim and Basalt, go infinite, essentially infinite uh, immediately because they tap for 4 and untap for 3. Oh, well, I guess in Monolith's case, it... Grim Monolith taps for three and untaps for four? Four. Yeah. yeah. So Grim Monolith just so spins its, its wheels. Yeah, Grim Monolith just spins its wheels. Yeah. But but, but Basil... Yes, it does, but... But Basil goes infinite. Yes. Yeah. Uh, and then Decree of Silence at a Scourge, we already talked about last week. This is the non-foils, right? Going from 1050 to 24? Pretty sure. Uh, Yes, that is correct. Yeah, this is yes, on the back of Gavi, the Jeskai cycling commander. I sold 12 copies of Decree of Silence this week and right up the ramp from started at 8, ended at 18. Um, card is for mm. realsies. People are buying it. I made, the mis- I made the mistake of having all three of my copies already listed. They got bought early. Yeah, they all bought sold. And then I went digging. And I didn't have any left. I don't do that anymore. If I have like, you know, multiple copies of a card, I list one. And you know what I do is in my my inventory box, I put all of the copies of a card together. Um, and, you know, if it's unless it's something I have like a million copies of, but if I have like in between one and even 10 or 15 copies of the card, I put them all in the, the box together. So then I sell a decree of silence and I go and I pull the decree of silence out to list and I'm like, oh, okay, there's seven more behind it. So I remember to add another one to my TCG inventory. Yeah. It depends on how many I have. If I have like a hundred and I can sell, and it's like a hot standard pioneer modern card that's sold in play sets all of a sudden, then I'm listing four at a time and I have a listing for one. And then I just, mm-hmm. and the listing for one has four copies available. You can get away with that on eBay, having two separate listings like that. One for four and one for multiples of one up to four. And then I have mm-hmm. dual exposure and the ability to reset them at a different price each time each one sells. If it's something else like a judge foil, I do it the same way you just described. Like do, do it one by one and evaluate the market each time. Yeah. And there, there are, you know, there are a couple ways to keep track of what you have. You know, if you're... More disciplined than I am, you keep a spreadsheet of everything in your inventory and it's always up to date. And if you sell a copy, you can look over your your spreadsheet and know that you still have copies left over. And that's excellent if you can keep up with that. If you're like me and a little bit rustier with it, putting the physical copies together with the copy that you need to sell means that when I touch the card to put it in an envelope, I'm immediately seeing the other copies of the card. Yeah. A little bit reliable for, <laughs> for people like myself. Yeah, it's actually one of the advantages. If you keep your spec box relatively simple and narrow, go deeper on some some of the best stuff, ignore the more unlikely uh, opportunities, and really focus in on the good stuff that matches your available time profile, then you have a key advantage over some of the bigger vendors who can't really fool around with list relisting things one at a time. Like if you're a Dan Bach, mm-hmm. you're not, you're not going to sell one of something at $4 and then and then post another one of the 128 copies you have. You're just going to put your inventory up and let it roll. 
And if you sell out of something, that's fine because you're working a completely different margin than us. And that's the thing that I think sometimes vendors don't really understand what the speculator side of things is all about because from their perspective, it seems silly because they're just going to buy something at 40% less and sell it at retail. And whatever retail is at the time, they're still making their 40%. From our perspective, we're buying it at retail and then trying to add 40%. Of course, we're looking for it to go up. So, and, and we have different overhead models. We have different inventory management models. Speculators tend to not buy a lot of the crap that dealers get stuck with. And so the way that we can manage our collections is completely different. Um, all right, so moving on over to the uh, Magic Online top movers, that uh, f- aforementioned demonic pact out of Origins moving from in non-foil from $0.70 cents to about three fifty for almost 400% gains. Uh, Metallic Mimic, uh, a key card in Modern Hardened Scales, going from $1.25 to almost three seventy five for 200% gains. Mox Amber is out of Dominaria, going from 3 bucks to 6 bucks. Teamer, Grixis... Uh, Bant, Urza stuff, all sorts of artifact decks using Mox Amber and Modern. Usually is about something like two copies, sometimes three. From the Ashes out of Commander 2013, a decent Commander card with a low drop rate in the treasure chest, going from 6 to about 10.50 or so for almost 80% gains. Show and Tell from Urza Saga, going from about $8 to $12 for about 50% gains on the back of Legacy Play, I'd imagine. Gilded Drake, also out of Saga, going from 9 to 13 uh, I, I would presume that is mostly from EDH play for 40%, 43% gains. Cavern of Souls out of uh, Avacyn Restored going from 16 to 21. That's a modern legacy EDH card um, that hasn't seen a reprint for a little while now. I think uh, Modern Masters 2017 was the last time we saw it. I'm not mistaken. Uh, I don't know. <laughs> I think so. Doc... Uh, Dockside Extortionist, Commander 2018, 28 to 35. Uh, it was dropped from the treasure chest, which is a key buying signal. Um, new treasure chest announcement was made today, so our Magic Online part of our Discord was going whack trying to figure out what was in, what was out, what the relative drop rates were, and what we should be buying. That led to all sorts of action. Uh, Dockside Extortionist was a single set plus treasure chest exposure and a very strong Commander card, so... It was already, even when it was in the treasure chest, a $28 card, which ex- ex- suggests that it was well outpacing supply with its demand. And now it's gone up to almost $36. That is a pretty good example of, a, of how single source low treasure chest drop rate cards on Magic Online can be way more expensive than their paper counterparts way earlier. And then. Yeah, that's. It's so wild how that operates on that platform um if you're not used to it if you're so used to paper and this last card is another good example of that lord wind grace um which is a commander 2017 card if i'm not mistaken um 70 online 70 ticks going to almost 80 ticks like it's only 12 percent gains but that's still 80 dollars for lord wind grace when i think it's certainly less than 10 dollars in in paper these days that's so much that's like so absurd yeah, it's because if you didn't buy the commander decks online that year, then you didn't have access to this card, and it was in the treasure chest, but at a very low drop rate. Um, and I think like it's three dollars in paper currently, <laughs> and almost thirty times that on Magic Online. Yeah, and that card is quite popular in paper too, right? Like that was one. It's one of the top commanders of the last several months. Uh. Yeah, Commander 2018, not 2017, if that's what I said. And 
yeah, I mean, for Wind Grace, you can play a Gatrog monster-style build, and you can do all sorts of fun stuff with that. Um, so people play more EDH online, and therefore you're going to see these random, relatively unavailable EDH cards spike up hard. Mm, yeah. Good, good news if you were uh, on the long plan on that you know, before all of this, and then suddenly you're not on a long plan anymore. You're on a two-week plan. All right. We can move on to our segment three. We're going to do our Ikoria set review, looking at the top cards for Standard, Pioneer, Modern, and EDH with the help of our friend Daniel Fournier. Welcome back, Mr. Fournier, here to help us evaluate one of the more complex and wild sets in recent memory. We're going to be talking about Ikoria, Layer of Behemoths. Welcome, Daniel. What's up? Are you all having as normal a time under quarantine as I have? Because I'm having a very normal time. Yeah. <laughs> the normalist. Life I'm is so, so normal. normal. I am the I went normal. into like a three-day K-hole and just played Final Fantasy <laughs> VII Remake. Just Get off the cast. Get off the cast. <laughs> just start to finish. <laughs> I just I called somebody the other two days. <laughs> I called somebody the other day with, who was having a problem, and I'm like, so what over the last month has changed? And I'm like, oh. but Well, I mean, like, <laughs> I mean, like all of that as I gesture towards my window. Other than that. Yeah, well, it'd, it'd be like that sometimes. I'm Anyways, just, Magic <laughs> the Gathering, eh? I'm just using Call of Duty Warzone to port my way into the Matrix. My wife is using 6,000-piece puzzles that she's fully confident she'll complete before we leave the house. Ooh. So, mm-hmm. It's a good Call. time. It's a good time for all that. And those of us that are stuck at home with children, oh boy. Oh, I, I can't imagine what this is like for so many people. I, I'm lucky that I, I live with my family. I actually, we all get along and I've been training for my 27 years of my life to sit on my ass, do nothing and play video games all day. So <laughs> it sucks, so, but it could be so much worse. So, yeah. All right. So yeah, we go ahead, Travis. I was just say we could go down this hole for a while talking about it's good that we're nerds, uh, yeah, but that's <laughs> that been, does no one any good. And we're preaching, we're preaching to the choir anyway. Everybody listening is in the same boat. Yeah. Yeah. Any who's all. All right. So Ikoria. So are you excited yeah. to pull out what? your uh, Godzilla dot deck? I think the first time I see like bio quartz space Godzilla on a magic card, I might walk away. <laughs> this. I've posted about this a bunch, but like, man, I hate this Godzilla stuff. I know it's, it's, I know for a lot of people it's awesome, and I'm not here to like rain on anyone's parade, but man, I cannot stand it. And it sucks because every single like Godzilla card also has like one of those super sick, like comic style art, full art cards, which are so beautiful. Yeah. And then Mm -hmm. there's these stupid Godzillas. It's, it's, at least we got the Godzillas. And also the comic book art, so like you can just do the comic book art and not have to carry around Godzilla yeah. cards. And if you and if you don't like either of them, you can just buy the pack version. Buy normal ones. Three yeah. arts for each. I, I agree that Godzilla is not for me either. It is surprising that Godzilla is the very first property they got, the first licensed property that showed up. Right? I was like every every like gotcha game and every like there's just so many like booster pack style properties that have done 4,000 corporate crossover events that are all mm-hmm. cringe to me. So I was hoping that magic would never, you know, never do like 
Uh, here's an anime reference. Would never do like an uh, Idol Masters crossover set or something. You, you realize like, you realize that it next, was bound to happen. You realize that next May we're getting One Piece crossover, and pretty soon people are going to uh, have full on weeb decks. Uh, people already have full on weeb decks. Hate to break. Yeah, it I mean, you could make the, you could make <laughs> the I have argument. Full on weeb decks. <laughs> yeah, right. You, you could make the argument, and I think I'm probably comfortable making it that Magic already had its crossover. When it did the all art Japanese cards and it was all anime artists like that, that was a basically yeah. crossover in all but name brand only. I think that was definitely like a testing ground. So when everyone lost their minds over the Yoshitaka Amano uh, Liliana, which to be fair is a beautiful looking magic card. Yeah, it really is. I just got when everyone lost their minds. They're like, okay, uh, well, what else is there in Japan that's good? Ah, Gojira, Godzilla. <laughs> Someone call up Toei and. Or, I don't know whoever has that that uh, that IP. Let's uh, make sure to make a lot of money off of this. Anyways, that's this is my initial cynical take on the set: is that there's so okay. many things in here that are cynical. Let's make a lot of money off of this gameplay design decisions. But anyways, <laughs> tell okay. So I guess this is probably as good a time as any other. Let, let, let's just take it from the top. What is your uh, ten thousand foot opinion on Ikoria here? I like a lot of the cards in it and yeah <laughs> that's, 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 that's where it's i think i like a lot yeah, of see, the but that sounds good designs. that sounds like a good review I, I like a lot of the individual designs i hate like almost all the macro decisions in the set i hate the the um the forced commander mechanic i think mutates like just a rules disaster a, a, every card is like very unintuitive to play in paper there's a they, they claim to be doing like like to, to be trying to ratchet down the complexity on a lot of cards, but everything doesn't do what it says, or you can't understand what a card does from reading it. It's just like it's clearly designed for digital play, and mm-hmm. I think the history and future, present and future of Magic digital play, well, I guess the present notwithstanding, uh, has always been a disaster. Uh, now it's the only way to play for the moment, but that will fade. Hopefully, I God, I hope. Uh, but we're just going to be left with, like, th- there's that card that says, uh, every turn, uh, give this one of ten different abilities. Yeah. Like, a, yeah. put a counter on it. It gives it one of ten different abilities. Mm-hmm. Wow. <laughs> you can't play that card with a six-sided die. You need specialty dice to play with this magic card in paper. Yeah, and it's not a mythic. It's a rare, so it'll be all over the place. Like, uh, do I have to bring a D10 to a to a sealed event? Do I have to bring a yes. D10 and, if I'm going to draft? And and the best part is that it's a 3-3 three, three yeah. for 3, and the first time the D10 works cleanly, but the next time you have to ignore oh, one of the numbers because you're only picking from the remaining the, 9 options. I'm not I'm not looking forward to the first time. Well, I mean, I'm washed, so this will never happen to me again. But the first time I'm sitting down at like a PT or whatever, again, this won't happen to me, uh, against <laughs> like a, a non-English-speaking player and trying to communicate, okay... Uh, has trample and hex proof. Uh, roll now uh, nine ten no. Like uh, that's gonna be so bad. I, I I wonder how many times people will be in a situation where they have to like choose between two of their creatures to kill. Like like they have to sacrifice a creature or something, and they're gonna look at their their three three with one token on it and think about the fact that they have to resolve the second counter next turn. Right, and a worse creature and a worse creature, and they will just sacrifice the artifact creature because like I don't want to deal with this. I'm gonna not bring a D10 and then call a judge. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, sorry guys, this is your fault. 
Yeah, the judges. You, level one judge. Level, level, rules advisor F&M judge. This is your fault right here. (laughs) Wizards won't admit that you're an employee, but I know better. Uh, Before, before the, before, about two hours ago now, I was looking through the spoiler just to make sure I had seen everything. And immediately I was hitting comments and I'm like, oh my God, a, you have a white common with three modes on it. And I guarantee you no one will ever pick the right mode. You have a green instant that makes two creatures fight, which in and of itself is like kind of a complicated explaining fight to someone who doesn't know magic or like it was new to magic is kind of complicated, but then yeah. based on a keyword, it changes how the damage is applied. And it uses a term that's never been used before in magic. You have like two other commons with four independent clauses of text. It's like, did you guys forget what time spiral was? I don't understand how we end up here. They never had any idea what time spiral was. <laughs> yeah, it's, it's, it's amazing. I still don't actually know what mutate does. I, that's, a, that's a joke for the record. Don't stop listening, anyone listening. I do know what Mutate does. That's a joke. Parody, not actionable. Parody. I was I was wondering if this is the first set where enfranchised Magic players feel like they know less about the rules than newer players. Like, I bet I look at the Ikoria spoiler and feel like I know less about how these cards work than somebody who's been playing for a year. Yeah. No, because they're going to look at those cards and just, like, make assumptions about how they work and not really think about it. And yeah. I'm going to look at them and just think about all the problems with it and be like, I don't know how any of this shit happens. Yeah. Th- there were definitely cards I saw on, on, like, the first spoiler there or whatever where I started reading and, was, and just stopped reading. I'm like, oh, whatever. <laughs> Whereas I feel like if I like got into card games playing Hearthstone, I'd be like, oh yeah, no, you put that on something else, and then it's like, oh man, yeah, like, I don't know. All right, so th- we're we're doing this mostly the same, but a little different this time around. We're still taking a look at which cards make the most sense for Standard, Pioneer, Modern, EDH. We'll also talk about the Commanders and some of the cards from the Commander 2020 Ikoria decks that are being released alongside this product, which made the spoiler season extra complex because more cards. Um, but we're not going to be looking at prices too much for a couple of reasons. First is you can't buy a Coria right now. Um, you can pre-order it, but most of the good pre-order pricing is already behind us. Uh, the actual paper release is a month later than it was supposed to be. So I suspect that the, the smartest move for most people is going to, since you don't need to have these to play anywhere right now, is going to be to wait for these to fall like a rock. There should be some kind of real strong initial demand here, and then the cliff it should the prices should fall off should be much steeper and sooner than normal when the most hyperactive magic players that felt like they, for whatever reasons, needed to have these cards in hand early will stop that process or end up purchasing everything they need, and the rest of us will just be patiently waiting for prices to collapse so that we can snap some stuff up. It seems very okay. difficult to accurately know what cards are going to be worth when the economy no longer exists. <laughs> yeah, I, well, yeah. Y- you're absolutely right. Like this is we are in a you know in in the context of this cast, we are in uncharted territory. We're dealing yeah. with information that we have no idea how to frame, no idea how to make sense of. Uh, but I don't feel too bad about it because no one on the planet does. <laughs> so <laughs> we're exactly it, it's as just, stupid as everyone else right yeah. now. We're, exactly, we're no it's just like yeah. Yeah, at least we recognize that we don't know anything about how anything is going to happen. So we're just going to blissfully pretend that uh, all of this will 
end, yeah. even though it might not. So my Let's guess chat is, about some magic and do what we can do. Yeah. <laughs> my guess is that if paper magic resumes within three months, there's going to be some really nice spikes from Ikoria. If it doesn't resume for six months, a large portion of the LGS network is going to be in real trouble. And kickstarting paper magic would, may be very difficult in the short term. Uh, if it doesn't resume for a year, we're probably in a Mad Max scenario, as we've already discussed. So... <laughs> Who cares what magic cards? Are yeah, I don't. I don't really give you a shit about what magic collection magic at that point. Yeah. My, my I, samurai I swords do... become more important at that point. <laughs> I do. God, you're both such weebs. I do have opinions. <laughs> I, I do have. I do think it's worth discussing some of that, but this is not the segment for that. Mm-hmm. <laughs> so uh, yeah, yeah, let's, let's go so, standard. So in our little nerd bubble, <laughs> in the imaginary standard. Uh, what do you think of Vadrox, Apex of Thunder? So I have, uh, first off, before we talk about any of these cards, I hate this thing that's happened with Magic lately, where every single legendary creature is called, like, Luxtron, Shaman of Destruction, <laughs> and then there's 400 different cards with that same name in the same set. And then there's yeah. a commander set that comes out every year that has, oh, Lux Voltron, uh, Wizard of elemental like <laughs> yeah how am i supposed so, to remember what any of these cards are called they're all the okay. same <laughs> so, yeah, wait so, so I, I, the, the, hold on let's back this up because he's right the top five <laughs> mythics in the site in the set not including their full names are snapdax aluna <laughs> nethroy badrock and brokos apex of get forever out of, get out of Bro- here so Brokos stupid. absolutely sounds like a joke. Yeah. And on okay. top now, of that, on. every single one of those cards has a Godzilla alt card with a different, like, Ghidorah, King of the Cosmos name on yeah. it. Like, come on. <laughs> hey, now, if you were deep into Godzilla mythos, you would know what those names are. Uh, a lot of sides not. Li- so... Now, listen. Now, hold on. I got a bone to pick with you, Dan. Well, sort of. <laughs> is you are absolutely correct, but that's not new. Like, Magic Legends have always been someone... X of Y or someone Xer of Y or the Xer, right? Like they have always followed like three, roughly three name formats. Yeah, Yeah, but I I would argue, I would argue that for a long time they got away with like culturally appropriating less common names, human names, and using them, Mm -hmm. and they sounded great in a fantasy context. Now they've kind of now they now they've run out of the like baby name book they got through Zed and they were done, and now they just have to throw syllables together till they finish the set absolutely i mean also I, I, you know, I would like to see a chart of like year by year the number of these kinds of legends with that naming format showing up because at this point it feels like there's like a hundred of them per year and i well, can't that's i know this is like a just like a jerry seinfeld bit but like i just can't keep track of them anymore like, no but th- so that i think you're probably right about but that is not because they got less clever with naming conventions it's because they've been catering more to edh sure. so they've been pretty more like i think that's yeah, true for sure but with picture like this Anyways. whole thing with the go- the godzilla skins with the tiny little writing with the card it actually is oh and people trying I, I to never know and people trying to play thought seas into that <laughs> I, I thought thought sees your snapdax nope this is a godzilla oh okay well then keep that card no problem yeah at some point i'm gonna play a meddling mage naming i don't know like rodan tightened a winged fury <laughs> no and, at some and, point and you're and gonna, gonna cast have to a call meddling... judge and i'm gonna be really mad about it <laughs> let's be honest at some point you're gonna cast a meddling mage naming voldemort like their day will come <laughs> uh, if there's a harry potter crossover event i you heard it here first. I'm quitting. It, <laughs> I'm it, might, it might not be until you're teaching your kid how to play magic, oh. but 
Uh, okay, so <laughs> let's get anyway. back. To, let's get back to Badrock Apex of Thunder. Jess guy for a three-three flying first strike. Whenever this creature mutates, you may cast target non-creature card with converted mana cost three or less from your graveyard without paying its mana cost. The mutate being one white slash blue, red red. <laughs> There's just so much text on the card, and the mutate being having a hybrid mana symbol in it too. Oh, yeah, it's that, just so funny. Extra juicy. Why is there just so much going on? And and why chill. and why didn't they just make the mutate one Jess guy to keep things? Simple? I know. Come on. Like I understand why it's. Like, lets it actually be played in draft and stuff, but it's a mythic. Like, I don't know. Whatever. Anyways. Yeah. Okay. This, uh, this card is uh, strong as hell. Yeah. Uh, right. you, so can, you, can you picture a Jeskai shell in Standard or Pioneer where you would play this? Uh, n- no, but that's because the, the nature of Standard, especially right now, is that Decks aren't really built around cards like these that are just generically powerful cards that do strong things. They're all based around absurd broken cards that should never have been printed that turn around games or generate disgusting advantages on their own, like uh, uh, Fires of Invention, Wilderness Reclamation, uh, card called Embercleave, just nonsense cards that win games on their own. And this doesn't qualify as a nonsense card. There's only a couple of them per set, but well, I mean, it, it requires it, a nonsense card to exist. Every, every like every card in standard right now for it to be good requires there to be a strategy that has a nonsense card or two in it. Right? It it still qualifies as a nonsense card because it's an elemental dinosaur cat. Oh my god! I didn't even notice that. Oh, okay. I have another rant. So so I hate these novelty creature types. So much. Yeah. I'm uh, so done with it. But they're going to be super. It's such like a. It's such an uwu Reddit epic thing. And and, and again, yeah. I understand this is a thing that a lot of people like, but it is not for me. These oh, are going to these are going to be super so funny cringed. down the road, though, when they pop up in tribal decks randomly. I'm like playing. people forget that this thing is an elemental, and it shows up in modern elementals. I already it is, it is get a little upset when I like play a cavern or something in uh, amulet. And I have to remember, like, what the difference between the creature types are. I'm like, oh, right. Uh, I think Sakura Tribe Scout is a scout, probably. A scout in his name. Maybe it's a scout. Uh, Did you see uh, they errata? Tracker is a scout. Uh, Did you see they errata Dryad of Ilzian Grove to be a Dryad? Be a dryad? Wait, really? Yeah. They, they, they yeah. also went back and oh made all the God. sharks sharks. They made what? All the shark cards are now sharks instead of fish. Oh, yeah, are so they? So you can have epic shark tribal... How, yeah. However, so, yeah, however, the however the new dolphin in the set is a fish. So go figure. Hmm. Okay, yeah, so I have a question. So. Of, I have an actual gameplay question about this card. Um, I know we're not trying to talk about gameplay uh, <laughs> and actual magic, but we're not allowed. To play uh, we're on the topic. Right now, so. Yeah. Um, now, when I first read this card, I was like, "Wow, this card's pretty nuts, right?" Like uh, for four mana, I get to reanimate a three mana permanent. Um, and then I have this still around. So I essentially I lose one mana the first time I play it, uh, you know, cause I'm paying four for a three mana permanent, but then every time after I get paid, sounds like makes sense. Right. But then as I came to understand mutate better and not that I understand mutate well, but better than <laughs> I did, I have some creature on the battlefield. Uh, I have a Teferi time reveler in my graveyard. So I go, okay, I'm going to mutate my bad rock apex of thunder onto this creature for four mana i get my teferi back 
the creature that I played, let's say it was bigger than a 3-3 three, three flyer. Like, let's say I want to keep that creature's body, right? So I paid four mana to reanimate my Teferi. My Vadrock is now mutated onto this other creature, and I left the other creature on top. But if I have no other mutate cards in my deck, that's it. I paid four mana to reanimate Teferi, and that's all that happened. And even if I mutate the Vadrock on top of the other creature, I now have turned that into a 3-3 flyer, and I return Teferi to my to play for four mana. But again, if I have no other mutate cards in my deck, that's it. Yeah, I, I think the premise of a lot of these mutate cards and how you have to judge them for standard is assuming that whenever this creature mutates means when you do this the first time, and you have to judge them based on that. that that's why I think, like... The, the mythic mutate cards are obviously like very strong and have very powerful mutate abilities because they have to get their value out of the first mutate. You, you also have to be assuming that if you're going to be putting one of those one of these in your deck, you have a way to like make a non-human creature that sucks. Like you have to have like a token or whatever sitting on the sitting in play that you mutate onto. Oh yeah. The, uh, otherwise, the, otherwise you're not going to play any of these cards, right? They have a bunch of conditions. The non-human card is clause is going to f people up in limited in paper. I honestly, just honestly just noticed that now. <laughs> Again, like the, there's the, this mechanic is awful. It's so overly complicated. You don't you can't possibly know what it actually does from reading it. I, I hate it. Yeah, and then okay, there's so, the whole thing where if you flicker a mutate stack, they all come oh back individually. God. Yeah, that doesn't make any sense. That's like not how magic works. But whatever. all right, so so I think that's fair. Is a it's good to think about these in terms of, and this is I'm stating this for our listeners and for myself that when you read the mutate abilities, you have to think you're only ever going to mutate it once, and they are inherently going to be good with bad tokens. Yeah. So if I'm getting an incidental one one uh, cat dragon token someplace. <laughs> Now I have a reason for for bad doc to be better because I get to upgrade this crummy token I don't care about and like get the ability on top of it. Yeah. Because because if you don't mutate these things, you don't get anything out of them. Which I think is the other important thing, right? Yeah, like, I, I do think they all have like passable stat lines without it. Like three mana, three three flying first strike is like you're not wasting your turn. Or like the snapbacks guys, a four mana three five double strike. Like that's th- these are totally passable stat lines where if things are going wrong, uh, you can still play them on curve. You can still play, them. Uh, but that, the and these are of, the mythics though. In, in the context of standard. So let's talk. Sure. Let's talk about snapdax for a second. Snapdax apex of the hunt one Mardu three five double strike. His mutate is two black slash red double white. Whenever this creature mutates, it deals four damage to target creature or planeswalker and opponent controls, and you gain four life. So, am I wrong? Does this not have a Siege Rhino kind of vibe to it? Yeah, I like this card a lot. I think it's actually probably one of the better ones for standard, just in terms of... If you end up with a standard that's about playing to the board a lot, uh, and given how absurd planeswalkers have been in recent memory, that's uh, likely to continue to be a thing. Uh, The ability to force... like to not Lightning Helix. What's that card called? Uh, War Leader Helix. Flame Tankabu? <laughs> yeah, yeah, whatever. Flame Tankabu, War Leader Helix. Four something, gain four, and then have this three five double strike. So it's a five toughness guy that swings for six. Well, that, and if, that's a great way to like keep Planeswalkers under control. Well, and if you mutated, let's assume you're putting this on at least a two two, maybe a three three, in which case you have like a five seven or a six eight double strike. Wait. 
I, th- I thought their power and toughness don't combine. It does not. Oh. I think. Uh, but uh, again, who no, knows? No, you're it's right. No, you're right. No, 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 you're right. You're right. They just get, they just share text lines. So if you put it on top, can it attack? So, th- but there is a tricky thing. I think if the creature in question has ca- <laughs> plus one, plus one counters on it. Yeah. Those will stay. I think. Then yeah. those will stack. Sure. <laughs> Okay, so easy if breeze. I have a token in play, if I have a token in play and I mutate Vadrock on top of it, can I attack? Does it? <laughs> does the Vadrock now have summoning sickness? Uh, if no, if, if <laughs> I'm calling the judge. If 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 Vadrock <laughs> is under the creature, the creature on the top of the stack is the creature. So you have essentially bestowed Snapdax or Vadrock on top of that creature, and yes, that creature could then attack. If if Vadrock is on top, no, no, no. If it, the creature on if top on is the creature, that's the creature whose name has just inherited the abilities okay. from the mutation. So if you have a token and you put Snapdax on it, and the token was already in play and was capable of attacking, then it's attacking with Snapdax. Or so if you, so if you so if you mutate and if your mutate goes on top, then it gains summoning sickness essentially. Correct. Hmm. This is all intuitive. So the other one that that, that wow. catches my eye is Brokos, <laughs> Apex of Forever. What a crazy name. Nightmare Beast Elemental, 2 Sultai, 6-6 six, six, Trample. His mutate is 2 blue slash black double green. You may cast Broko, Brokos, Apex of Forever from your graveyard using <coughs> its mutate ability. The thing I like about this one is, who cares if you mutated it? It ends up in the graveyard at some point, and you just get to keep bringing them back over and over again. Mm-hmm. And it's not once, it's however many times you can do it. Yeah, this card could potentially be pretty powerful. Uh, it depends on standard being in a place where uh, being able to pay five mana to turn like a token in play into a 6-6 six, six is good. Uh, which might continue to be the case. If I'm not mistaken, if you put this on a... If you put this... Oh God, actually, who knows? It's impossible to know. If <laughs> I'm just gonna find the controls, hold on. <laughs> um, it, it, it might be that this is really good with Nissa because it's like a then you have like a nine nine trample because Nissa has plus. Gives oh yeah, because because she puts counters on her lands. So yeah, I think it's a nine nine. Hmm. I I, I it, when I saw someone mention this, they're like they said something about oh the new Brokos, and I'm like oh they must have revealed the card that's like really good. Like maybe his name is like Okos <laughs> oh, yeah, or something, yeah. and they, they were had a Broco last year. Am I right, fellows? And yeah, and I'm like, oh wait, the card's actually named Brokos. Okay, so so what about like, yeah? If, if you try to control F uh, summoning sickness in the comprehensive rules for uh, mutate, it gets zero results. Wow, <laughs> uh, I'm done. I think I quit magic. <laughs> what about this other one? Anyways, <laughs> Nethroy Apex of Death two. Uh, Abzan, 5-5, five, five. Mutate is 4, green slash white, double black. It's a death touch, lifelink, 5-5 five, five for 5, which is, first of all, pretty uh, solid pretty solid stat line. But when you mutate it for 7, which I'm assuming is only ever going to be reasonable in EDH or standard, whenever the creature mutates, return any number of target creature cards with total power, 10 or less from your graveyard onto the battlefield. Yeah, that's a big flashy effect. There has to be, like, obviously a very specific deck for it. Uh, chances are it doesn't exist in standard. Okay. I like it, though. <laughs> this card's cool. In, in EDH, the problem with this card is you... Whatever... Uh, the top 50 things you could do with it, I'll just win the game on the spot and piss everybody off. 
Yeah. It's definitely how the format's meant to be played, so. It's basically <laughs> like, what What was the card that works with Flash that brings in CEDH that gets all the... Protean Hulk. Sorry? Protean yes, Hulk. Yes, it's like a Protean Hulk. It's ugly. All right. Moving right along, let's look at something else that's not a ridiculously named three tribal mon- tri tribal monster. How about Vivian Monsters Advocate? I, I would like to clarify if you mutate on top of a token or something, if that token has been in play since last turn, it can attack. Yeah, that's what I thought. You can attack. Yeah, it was not yeah, easy if to you mutate that on top. <laughs> But you have to mutate on top of even if you mutate on top of it, you can. Well, yeah, but it's not. Yeah, on- it's 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 the same object as it was before, so it has been in play since your upkeep. So but, kind of okay. but isn't the token on top? It doesn't matter where you put it. Like whatever. Really? Sorry, I might have said I might have said that wrong. But the whatever the object is the same object as it was forever. So, but don't you when you, you make you change the object when you build the stack? Don't you have to choose which creature is actually still in play? You choose which of the cards is on top of the stack, but the yes. object that the stack consists of is the same object as it was from before you made a stack. Interesting. Le- learning new stuff about mutate every thirty seconds. Yeah. Well. <laughs> All right. So <laughs> Vivian, well designed ability. Vivian, <laughs> Vivian, monsters advocate. Three double green. Three loyalty. You can look at the top cards of your library at any time. You can cast creature spells from the top of your library. Plus one gives you a three three green beast creature token. And it gets either a Vigilance counter, a Reach counter, or a Trample counter, which now all Magic players need to own keyword counters for the rest of their existence. Again, I am quitting Magic. Minus two. (laughs) When you cast your next creature spell this turn, search your library for a creature card with lesser converted mana cost, put it onto the battlefield, then shuffle your library. Yeah, this card's good. It's really good. Maybe even extremely good. Yeah. Uh, I'm not sure it's better than Nyssa in a lot of decks. But also a lot of the decks that are playing Nissa right now are like cutting Nissa numbers because they're not actually good at generating a lot of mana off of Nissa because like they're low in forest counts or whatever, like Sultai. Sure. Uh, or like in Bant or something, they don't actually make use of the double mana all that much. And if you're not really making use of the 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 absurdity of the mana advantage that Nissa provides, then uh, this card's probably just as good, if not better. It, it certainly grinds out a lot more effectively. This this card's very good at kind of taking over a game and card advantage way too quickly. And there's also all of the open-ended synergies for both future standard sets, Pioneer, and certainly in EDH, where yeah. that next creature you cast goes and gets something <clears throat> that combos with it because you get, mm-hmm. and then you just win. Yeah, absolutely. I doubt that's going to show up in standard. Well, actually, who knows anymore? But hopefully that doesn't show up in standard. But that that ability is really powerful. The rest of the text on the card is incredibly powerful. Like, yeah, this is a really good card. Can can we go get Heliod and Walking Ballista with this? Uh, I mean, the Heliod will sorry, the Walking Ballista will go to the graveyard the moment it hits play. So it doesn't get a counter from Heliod. I don't think that's how Heliod works. No. So you have to have some other way to make it have a counter on entry? Yeah, you have to find a... Yeah, I mean... Yeah, you'd have to find a replacement effect that would give uh, the Walking Ballista counter on coming into play. Because if it's a trigger or something, it just dies before that can happen. 
And things like Vizier Remedies and Devoted Druid don't work because they're the same casting cost. But inevitably, there will be... Yeah, I'm sure there's something or something will be printed. But either way, it's a five-mana Planeswalker, so its application in modern and stuff is a little less... uh, Not so important as it would be if it showed up in Pioneer. You feel feel better about it in Pioneer? Uh, Yeah, I think it's more likely to be good in Pioneer. Do you think that five mana is still too expensive for most Planeswalkers in Pioneer? Um, no, I think that's kind of the point of, like, powerful green Planeswalkers. Well, especially since uh, they still have access to Nykthos. Yeah, exactly. Uh, it, it might be a replacement for Nyssa in that, uh, that mono green deck. Maybe not. Uh, I'm not entirely sure where it goes in Pioneer. Okay. But, uh, the, the card in and of itself is a very powerful five-mana Planeswalker. Uh, where, where that goes in non-standard formats, who knows, but this will be a standard staple, I'm sure. Okay. How do you feel about the other two planeswalkers, Luca, Coppercoat, Outcast, and uh, the new Narset? So I didn't like the Narset very much, but uh, some friends of mine disagreed with me and liked it quite a bit. Uh, my issue with the Narset is that I think when you uh, <clears throat> minus it, it is left at two loyalty, which is not the greatest number. And also you have to discard a playable from your hand to have that uh, minus ability like you have to discard a non-land for your the minus ability to uh, clear the board and defend Narset. So, Narset, so if you want to like <clears throat> improve your hand, chances are that that minus two is not uh, doing very much. So I guess you should say what the card does if you want to. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> enough complexity to worth be worth reviewing. Narset of the Ancient Way is one Jeskai, legendary planeswalker Narset, a mythic, plus one. You gain two life, and then add blue, red, or white. Spend this mana only to cast a non-creature spell. Minus two is draw a card, then discard a card. When you discard a non-land card this way, you deal damage to the cards equal to the card's converted mana cost to target creature or planeswalker. And minus six is you get an emblem with whenever you cast a non-creature spell, this emblem deals two damage to any target. Yeah, this card is by far at its best when you're playing it on an empty board and then minusing it and discarding like a Dream Trawler or whatever to nuke a planeswalker from orbit. But I think those kinds of situations are not necessarily going to be that likely. And the problem with this card as a four mana planeswalker is that it doesn't generate card advantage uh, without you discarding spells. And when you do that, you're left with a very fragile planeswalker in play. So, yeah, like, this card might be okay, but it's not, it's not like a rock star, you know? Okay. And what about the Luca planeswalker? This one is Luca Coppercoat. Outcast, three double red, five loyalty, plus one, exile the top three cards of your library, creature cards, exile this way, gain, you may cast this card from exile as long as you control a Luka Planeswalker. Minus two, exile target creature you control, then reveal cards from the top of your library until you reveal a creature card with higher converted mana cost. Put the card onto the battlefield and the rest on the bottom of your library in a random order. Minus seven, each creature you control deals combat equal to its power to each opponent. Uh, this card's a little bit harder to evaluate than the other ones because it's powerful ability, which is, uh, I mean, the, the, the possibility is powerful. It, it is good. If you have a lot of creatures in your deck, then, uh, that's a good possibility. It starts at six, six loyalty, goes up to seven very quickly. Like th- this card can take over a game very quickly if you're in a dominant position, but it doesn't, uh, really do a great job of defending itself and it doesn't really do a great job of actually generating on-board advantage. 
except if the minus two happens to be really good in your deck or happens to be really good in general. It's a very difficult ability to evaluate because uh, effects like that where you're trading in cards for random effects off the top aren't really seen very often in competitive play. Uh, that kind of effect, which I, I'm sure we've seen it before. Like I don't even remember what it's called, but I, I know it exists. Shape a new and, kind of thing. Yeah, like there's it's, all these cards uh, that do this stuff. That are sneak like, attack. Yeah. Well, the, no, no. These the, are not the, the minus two cards, is right? is the thing where you you have a token, not a creature, in your deck. So you make a token, then you exile it, and you go flip through your deck till you get some a, the like only creature in your yeah the only creature in your deck, and you put that card onto the battlefield and roll. So, yeah. Okay. So I think if you're using this card for that purpose, it's both very powerful and not competitive. Sure. So the, the, those kinds of decks so, are typically not tiered competitive strategies. Oh. Okay, think, so hold on. Because I, 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 wanna... I think that effect is available at four mana, if I'm not mistaken, like three and a red. Well, that's sneak attack. Like sneak attack no, 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 is... No, 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 not sneak attack. It's the one that replate, that you sack creature and go get uh, another creature. And then there's another one, indomitable creativity, that let you sack artifacts or creatures and then go switch them up. Yeah, these effects have existed in the past and have not been like relevant. It's, it's if they exist in standard, like polymorph-style effects, right? Yes, yes, yes. I know I've played a polymorph deck at like FNM like 10 years ago or whatever, but like that's, <laughs> that, that stuff's not real. So it, it shows up on the fringes of modern here and there. Yeah, so, so what I want to evaluate that ability in the context of in terms of competitive play at the very least is uh, whether or not uh, it revealing... Because it reveals a creature card with, like, you play the first, you get the first card that has a con- higher converted mana cost. So, is this five mana, five loyalty planeswalker that goes down to three to upgrade a creature in mana cost and untap it crucially? It, is that worth it? I, I, man, I don't know. <laughs> that's not an ability that's ever really existed before and is very hard to evaluate. It could be very good, especially if you're recycling a bunch of creatures with comes into play abilities. But, like, is red really the color for that? Is standard really the place for that? It's hard to say. These effects have existed sort of in one shots for a while, right? Like, you have, like you said, polymorph um, and mass polymorph back in, like, M10. And they've shown up in various stripes for a while. I think I've lost to mass polymorph before, just say. Say that again? I think I've lost to mass polymorph before. Yeah, well, I remember uh, on a side note that the FFL thought that Mass Polymorph was going to be a major deck in um, in Standard. They in also fact, didn't uh, realize that Stoneforge Mystic was good with Batter Skull, though. So, yeah, well, okay, but anyways, <laughs> we know, like, we we can look at the the ceiling for these effects as essentially sneak attack, which is four mana. Then you pay additional mana to put a creature from your hand into a play attacking. Um, obviously, that's an entire legacy deck. That's yeah. so you're paying five mana to put a creature from your hand into play. Luca, you're paying five mana to exile a creature. We're presuming a token to then go get a creature that you have some you've ideally built your deck around having some control over, who then stays in play and can do it again next turn. Now, clearly, this is worse than sneak attack, um, but it's yes. not a one shot effect like a lot of spells would be. So I think this kind of you, effect for it to be good has to be a one sh- like has to win in one shot though, right? 
Um, yeah, I suppose that's fair, right? If if you're you if you haven't won the game on the turn that you activate them, you need to have put the game essentially out of reach on the turn that you activated them. Yeah, because these um, kinds of powerful things don't exist in standard and pioneer. They're like modern and legacy plays, and if you're making these five minute investments, then. So my thought was, do you think that this is relevant in Pioneer? No. We, you know, is this the first card that's going to give the cheetah creature into play archetype in Pioneer some legs? No, because you already need to find a way to put a creature into play. And at this point, you have a, you're, this is then a three-card combination. You have to have access to, you have to build your deck such that you have the big, yeah, so that you have the payoff. And the biggest payoffs don't exist in Pioneer. Like, you don't have Gristlebrand in Pioneer. Uh, you need a token producer, and all like the available token producers in Pioneer are not are bad. Not hot. I, I I haven't I haven't done a study of token producers in Pioneer, but I do yeah, agree. I'm sure, you just play like Dragon Fodder. All right, kind of stuff. all right. So let me let me put this. The lack of payoff is the, missing. Let me put this in context for Modern. The last five O deck with Polymorph style abilities in Modern was April tenth. And this 5-0 list was 2 Emrakul, the Aeon's Torn, 4 Teferi, Time Reveler, 4 Lightning Bolt, 3 Quicken, 2 Spell Pierce, 2 Is it Charm, 3 Mana Leak, 4 Remand, 4 Force of Negation, 4 Indomitable Creativity, that's your multi-polymorph, and 4 Polymorph. Sounds like a fun deck. Ha. I'm giving you. I'm giving you the list. I'm giving you the list in chat, Daniel. Uh, I, I, I'm astonished that uh, this deck five. <laughs> it's got to fairy time raveler. It was a lock. I guess. Yeah. Can can you just How's win with it? any janky combo with fairy time raveler since they can't do anything on your turn? Yeah, I suppose. I, I suppose what's what led to the five o was the Jeskai shell and some combo in it rather than. You know, yeah, I'm not a fan of this kind of stuff. There's always going to be some like random nonsense taking place in uh in in these kinds of formats, but like I'm not that interested. Oh wow, I, I, this is a dwarven mind deck. That's yeah, how I was getting a creature into play. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I was like, I was like, wait, where are the tokens oh, coming from? And I'm like, oh yeah, God. dwarven mind out of Eldraine. <laughs> yeah, it's, it's, yeah, it's like three steam vents, two sacred foundry, and then instead of like winning the game by having good cards like Crypto Command and uh, Mystic Sanctuary <laughs> instead of playing like, a of creativity and Dwarf and Mine. All right, you know, whatever. It's kind of cool. I've decided that you two don't live Moss. <laughs> and the reason that you don't like this card is because you don't live Moss. I actually like <laughs> One this day. Deck. I'm going to play Okay, okay. okay. So Moss. in this context, though, could Luca replace Indomitable Creativity? No. For, no. Yeah, it, costs, it costs more mana. This deck's eight hundred and fifty dollars. <laughs> it's six hundred ticks on photo. <laughs> Force of negations and Teferis are both over fifty ticks each. All right, uh, never mind. I'm not playing it. I guess. <laughs> All right, so let's talk about the Ultimatum series. The only reason I'm bringing these up in the, in a constructed context is we have Fires of Invention on deck. So does a seven mana ruinous ultimatum that is free to cast if you have seven lands and destroys all non-land permanents your opponent's control tickle your, tickle your fancy at all yes <laughs> okay uh do, do you like that uh, uh, do you do you want to destroy uh, all their stuff or do you want to put look at the top five cards of your library and put all the permanents into play for free off genesis ultimatum i think any of these ones that you're casting is going to be uh probably game winning <laughs> 
is it safe to say that the Genesis Ultimatum is more likely to hit because it's Teamer and not Mardu? Or does uh, that even matter? Like, would you put possibly, the Mardu? Would yeah. you put the Mardu one in a Fires deck with no way to cast it? Uh, probably not. I think if you, I think those decks probably have better options than that. I, I like the idea of Genesis Ultimatum because it's also like a thing you can random like with Gross Spiral with Gross Spiral and Uro around. You kind of get to do some really unreasonable stuff in terms of having. 100 mana in play on turn three and standard right now sure and so having just like another huge payoff for that just doesn't seem that bad um however if you were to cast any of these with the fires in play you would also win but also generally when you have a fires in play and are casting spells you're winning already uh it's hard to say like these are incredibly powerful cards that if you cast them, you're probably going to win but if you're casting them you might already have won okay which one's the worst one? Uh, probably Inspired Ultimatum. Yeah. Uh, yeah, that was my read too. But it might also be Emergent Ultimatum. That's a card that's hard to evaluate. I- either way, they're all going to win you the game. <laughs> sure. Okay. Uh, so you and I talked a bit before the cast the other day about Cheville Bane of Monsters. You thought that might hit in standard? That's the guy uh, that yes, puts. Yes, trying to remember which one that is because every card has the same mm-hmm. name now. Yeah, so Cheville uh, is a one-three death yeah. touch for green-black. At the beginning of your upkeep, if your opponent controls no permanence with a bounty counter, you put a bounty counter on a creature or a planeswalker they control, and then when a permanent and opponent controls with a bounty con- counter on it dies, you gain three life and draw a card. So if you're in some kind of grindy, mass kill, mass board wipe deck, Cheville can do a bunch of work. Yeah, I, I like this card as like a very classic like John style two drop that's able to take over games. Um with card advantage and life gain and everything else. Because it has death touch and has a floor to it, like it's able to just trade with any creature. Uh this card is just generally pretty powerful. It's a little bit of a word soup on it, but what it does is pretty straightforward. Like it, every turn if you kill something, you gain three life and draw a card. It strikes me uh, as the fact like we should probably be reading it as Cheville Bane of Red Decks, right? Like how how yeah, does Mono Red be? If the game three life matters, then this card's absolutely gonna bury you. And red decks, I think, are unless there's a lightning strike hiding in this set somewhere, red decks aren't very good at dealing three damage efficiently right now. They're made way better at putting creatures into play, which Shovel wants you to do. Also, this guy absolutely passes the fit check. Look at those vibes, man. It's a good <laughs> good outfit. <laughs> Yeah, he's he's got daddy vibes. Yeah, yeah. You can tell he hasn't been quarantined. Ooh. He he is quarantining others. Never mind. <laughs> that that, that sure. didn't land. I'm off it. Alright, how about Fiend Artisan? One one for hybrid green black, hybrid green black. It's a nightmare. Just just one creature type. So it's already a more wow. light card. Fiend Artisan gets plus one plus one for each creature card in your graveyard. And then it has a little birthing pod esque ability. X, green or black. Tap, sack another creature. Search your library for a creature card with converted mana cost X or less. Put it onto the battlefield, then shuffle your library. This is a weird one to evaluate, too, huh? Yeah, I think it's pretty good. In all likelihood, in any deck that wants this kind of card, uh, in probably only Standard or Pioneer, to be perfectly honest. Uh, it's going to be like a two mana three three or four four maybe even bigger than that and that's already like a pretty totally reasonable target wave situation you know um 
it's a little bit harder to evaluate the other effect because one of the things that was powerful about Birthing Pod is that it cheated on mana. Whereas this card actually, just in general, is going to not cheat you mana, ever. Like, you played Birthing Pod with cards with come into play effects so that you got the majority of their value even after you sacrificed them. But with this, you're paying the full cost. So, yeah, It's certainly a good card. I'm not sure if it's actually going to be a role player in any decks. Do you think? Do you think this one's it actually? Sorry, Travis, go ahead. I would say it doesn't strike me as a as a birthing pod, and I don't. And I think that you're right, and the people trying to compare this to birthing pod are probably missing the mark because of as you described, birthing pod was such an absurd value engine, whereas you're you're paying the full price on this every time. But it does seem like it gives you some utility and flexibility. It also gets gives you a way to get uh, make use of creatures that are on their way out. Um, yeah, you can make, you know, you can make attacks and then whichever creature is not going to be useful during combat, you can just upgrade in the moment type of thing. So it almost like, like more Jundi, just get value everywhere type of deal. Yeah. I do think this card might be like a combo piece. Yeah. I do think this card might be like a pioneer dredge kind of card in that it like is good at recycling, uh, like Seder wayfinders and, uh, uh, Stitcher suppliers into yeah. I don't know more Stitcher suppliers or something that only costs two mana that that fills your graveyard pretty effectively and then you have this like five five fiend artisan left over like that seems pretty good to me but that deck's awful so <laughs> I, don't, I don't know mm. I I would love for this to get low because I would absolutely be a buyer it's I think it started at like over twenty or something and I was yeah that's you know, not <laughs> I'm happy to scoff at that price. I would love for this to miss and need some extra pieces and then get there later. Because Stitcher Supplier and Seder Wayfinder do do a pretty good job of filling the yard. And then in in formats like Modern, you might actually have get more value out of the X-Tap get a creature ability because you can go get things like Death Shadow. Yeah. I mean, if you're if, if this thing's a 4-4 four, four and you're pulling in a 8-8 eight, eight Death Shadow, you're... <laughs> doing all right yeah the, the, the problem there is that death shadow decks usually want to have a very low creature count because creatures don't do a very good job of lowering your own life total sure uh oh i wanted to but eh, who knows i wanted to ask you what do you think about this as like a suit not, like a pseudo tarmogoyf like right it's not tarmogoyf but the fact that it you know just keeps scaling as stuff goes into your graveyard uh i mean is it reasonable to play this as a just uh two mana creature that's going to come down as a 3-3 three, three or a 4-4 four, four and just keep going from there um, and focus more on that half of it? The I think that's unlikely. The, the reason Tarmogoyf is good at fulfilling its role is because it's played as this just way above rate beat stick in specifically formats where you're able, or not able to, but encouraged to by the nature of the format to do the thing that makes Tarmogoyf good, a.k.a. Crack Fetch Lands, Cast Slot Seizes... Uh, Mistress Bobbles, etc. Uh, cast Counter Spells, yeah, Mistress Bobbles, whatever. Like, you're encouraged to do all of the things that make Tarmogoyf good. For Fiend Artisan to make it good, you have to do something very specific. You have to have a lot of creatures in your deck and play Self Mill. Uh, as a result, this doesn't end up being a pay... Like, it ends up being a payoff card rather than a generic card that always is going to function. 
and, okay. and, it's, and it's interesting that there's some tension between its two modes, right? Because if you're on the aggro plan, you're never going to tap tap it because you're tapping out to attack with it. And if you're yeah, on the exactly. utility plan, then you never get to attack with it. So I think for this card to be good, you have to want to be activating it once or twice and then being left over with like an 8-8 eight, eight or something and then killing people with it. If that's the case and that's the thing that's good, then it's going to be very good. But I don't think it's a generically... It's not a generically powerful card. It's like a a dual uh, payoff and synergy card in a very specific like creature graveyard deck. I, I am curious mm-hmm. about Which it historically though, are not good. I am curious about it though in the like every combo every creature combo in modern builds where you could tutor up the missing piece, whether it's Heliod, Vizier of Remedies, Devoted Druid, Walking Ballista, whatever. Yeah, or maybe it's good in uh like the Yawgmoth deck or something. <laughs> Those decks have not really been a part of a significant part of the metagame lately, so I'm not really sure how to evaluate them. But hmm. yeah, it's possible this card could be a piece in those. It, it is important to remember that in those decks, though, this card is very slow. And that's a two-drop that you need to untap with and then invest another five mana. Sorry, another three mana into it. It's like a five mana investment over two turns. It doesn't have a very large stat line early in the game. I'm not entirely sure it's it goes in those decks, but also I don't really know how to build those decks right now, so I'm not I'm not certain. In in your network, has anybody showed you a good list with this in any format? No, no nobody I know is interested in this card. Okay, well, cool. Sorry, that's not true. There are people I know who are interested in this card, but from a more casual perspective. All right. So, what about Lurus of the Dream Den? Now we get into. I'm sure you have opinions on Companion. Uh, this is. Well, one... I have to scroll down and find which of the X comma X of X cards this one is. So this is one <laughs> white black white black three two companion. Each permanent card in your starting deck has converted mana cost two or less. Lifelink during each of your turns you may cast one permanent spell with converted mana cost two or less from your graveyard. Yeah, this is one of those fun cards that's either completely unplayable or broken and should probably be banned. Cause uh there's this little card called Lion's Eye Diamond. I'm not sure if they've ever heard of it. Uh <laughs> But, uh, yeah, I mean, this card's an auto-include in, like, Legacy Storm, every single vintage deck, because uh, none of those decks have permanents that cost more than two anyways. I guess in vintage right now, there's a lot of, like, Rose and stuff, or Okos or whatever. Are there Okos in vintage? Who cares? Whatever. Oh, yeah. It's just yeah, yeah, real. Yeah. Um, <laughs> there, there, there are Okos in vintage, for sure. The yeah. But, you know, one, one of the examples that we were talking about last week was the white-black SRAM deck in Pioneer, where this just locks right into place as nothing but pure upside because they they don't have any permits yeah, that's fair yeah you can just put that in this deck why not and then the other thing i was thinking why about put was it we were talking about death shadow decks what about a death shadow tarmogoyf deck that has this for value uh yeah sure uh i mean death, with death shadow <laughs> you want uh um oh my god what's it called street wraith and like yeah, street wraith yeah. is like an essential card in death shadow right Mm-hmm. So I think that kind of turns this off, but uh, I, this is part of why I just absolutely hate Companion, because the, the reality of Companion's role in competitive magic is that you are going to be including these cards in your deck only if they're free. If you have to make deck-building decisions to change them, it's probably not going to happen, because like none of these cards are essentially powerful enough to be... like extremely strong build arounds with the exception of Lurus maybe because but only because of cards like Lion's Eye Diamond or something that are absolutely broken um if it works for you it's just this free eighth card in your hand which just breaks the rules of how magic should be played to be perfectly honest um 
or it's just not a thing you're allowed to play. You're just not allowed to play it, or it's like free. And I don't know. This looks such like a weird, unpleasant dichotomy to me. Also, I don't want to play Commander. <laughs> I, I don't like it. Yeah. I, I don't want to play it. I, don't make me. This does. I, I'm. Wor- this I, does seem like it reduces variance pretty significantly, oh, or has absolutely. the likelihood of reducing variance. If you get to play, like Lura specifically, is a very powerful magic card. If it has almost no opportunity cost. So Sam Black is already on record with two strong opinions about companion companion one that it's the worst mechanic for the health of competitive magic in ages absolutely agreed absolutely now what about this second opinion he says it's not luris but yorion the sky nomad which is the how am i supposed to know what that card is most most broken (laughs) of the companions that's the three white blue white blue four five flyer your starting deck contains oh, yeah. at least 20 cards more than the minimum deck size, so you have to have an 80-card deck in Pioneer or Modern. When it enters the battlefield, you exile any number of other non-land permanents you own and control. Return those cards to the battlefield at the beginning of your next end step. So it is a Flicker King that lands on 5 and forces you to play with 20 cards more than usual. Uh... Yeah, I, I'm not entirely sure I agree with that take. I, I do think this card is definitely powerful and certainly playable. Uh, however, it, it does actually have a, a cost for the companion ability. Uh, it, it's very hard to evaluate the cost of having an 80-card deck because, you know, this is not something we're used to uh, used to dealing with in tournament magic. Uh, it is just a, it's a sacred cow. You play 60 cards because... You play 60 cards, and here are all the reasons why you play 60 cards. But what if you had to play 80 cards? Oh, who knows? I don't know. <laughs> I don't know what that means. <laughs> uh, so that You know what playing 80 cards is? Playing 80 cards is living moss. It sure is living moss, let me tell you. Um, <laughs> I'm not so sure about the hot take that this is like absolutely bust out. It certainly is a, a powerful effect, especially on a card, to have a free 8th card in hand. And a five mana four or five flying is like a pretty good stat line in general, but um, yeah, I I don't know. I'm not necessarily sold on that. I, I don't know what eighty card decks mean, and I don't think anyone really knows until we have a data set to work off of, which we will never get because that data set is not possible to achieve through gameplay. All right, so it's not, hmm. it's not how statistics work, right? So, so. so here, so here's a companion deck I designed for you the other day. <laughs> this this is based on Zerda the red Zerda the Dawn Waker, who is one uh, red slash white red slash white. It's an elemental fox three three. Its companion requirement is each permanent card in your starting deck has an activated ability. Those activated abilities aren't that aren't mana abilities cost two less to activate, but no can't be reduced to less than one. And Zerda has a tacked on silly ability one tap target creature can't block this turn so i sent you a list with four walking ballista four soulfire grandmaster three heliod suncrowned two narset parter avails four teferi time raveler and then a bunch of jeskai spells and three isochron scepter the, the fact that you can still just play a bunch of planeswalkers with this card makes me hate it <laughs> just to <just> say <laughs> um uh, I, I don't know. <laughs> so adding counters uh, to Walking Ballista is reduced by two. Your Soulfire yeah. Grandmaster uh, 
put spells back in your hand for Jeskai. Uh, sorry, not Jeskai. Is is it? Your Heliod Sun Crowned can give things lifelink for one white, and your Isochron Scepter taps for one mana. You still have to pay three mana to get that cost reduction in, though. Sure. Like I, to, I, to put a three I'm three not, in play so that doesn't sure do anything else. One. Yeah, I'm not so sure about this one. I think I've zeroed the Dawn Waker, much like uh, the stupid other card, the black white one. If this card's going to be good, it's because it's going to like randomly have some stupid infinite combo that you get to do for free because it starts in exile or something, or like it's yeah. or like you played in Legacy with uh, a bunch of like Grim Monoliths and stuff, right? Like, I, I just want to cast Silent Scepter on people with Teferi in play. Is that so wrong? I I can tell <laughs> from the deck list. <laughs> 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 and from the fact that it's the fourth deck list like this he's floated this year <laughs> probably at least someone just really wants to play no stick i get it i get it yeah yeah okay. I, I hate these companion cards it's i like that they're exploring design space i wish they weren't exploring the design space of making me play commander okay <laughs> how about this card the ozolith uh legendary artifact for one mana Whenever a creature you control leaves the battlefield, if it had counters on it, put those counters on the Ozolith. At the beginning of combat on your turn, if the Ozolith has counters on it, you may move all counters from the Ozolith onto target creature. So in Legacy, people are talking about this with uh, Skullbriar. Uh, because that card is a commander card that is playable in Legacy, and it's a 1-1 haste for Golgari. And if it leaves play and goes to the graveyard... It keeps the counters on it, but the, it can't. It would keep the counters on it, and the counters would go on the Ozolith. And the next time it came into play and attacked, say it went out as a three-three, it would be attacking as a five-five. Do you see this sliding into some hardened scales type shenanigans somewhere in Pioneer or Modern? Unlikely, to be honest, because I don't think those decks are good in the first place. I don't think. Their weaknesses are shored by having another card that doesn't have any text on it unless it's synergizing with something else in it. Okay. Uh, as far as that legacy combination, man, just play show and tell. Just put an Emrakul into play. Like, you don't gotta be cute. You can just kill them. <laughs> it's legacy. Fair. Uh, why are we playing Magic if not to be cute? <laughs> well, this is Spike versus versus Johnny, right? Yeah. Listen, you have me on here to ask me. About yeah, this, magic. we're not asking <laughs> to defend defend Johnny decisions. All right. So, how about the Trilands? Does does the fact that the the Triomes include all three land types make it likely that you would include one or two of them in fetchable mana bases in at least modern? I don't think so. Um, I think all of the decks that kind of that wanted that kind of ability already had access to that with the I think I think they're from Amoncat, the previous cycling lands. But yeah, they only they only Amoncat. they only make two colors. These make three. Yeah, but making three over two colors isn't really that big a deal. Your, your fetch land mana bases in modern and beyond already have perfect mana. Like, y- you don't need the first land you get to get three colors. If you really wanted to do that, you could play, uh, uh, like, Murmuring Boss and stuff, but, like, you, you don't see cards like that in play because it's not necessary. You, your, your fetch land shock land mana base is already good enough. In Pioneer, you can't fetch it, uh, and I think these are pretty clearly standard cards. And uh, as much as I like them, I love lands with cycling so much. Oh my god, they're so good for magic. I love cycling. I love cycling. But 
man, three is a lot. <laughs> That's a lot to pay to cycle a card. Sure. Um, it's not a trivial amount, like one or two. Uh, but the fact that they're trilands for standard almost definitely makes them playable, especially in a set that looks like it's going to end up in a format with a lot of a lot of three color decks, a lot of very demanding mana bases, with like ultimatums and all these like four mana enchantments that are very powerful and all that kind of stuff. Like, I think trilands are going to be in demand. Okay. The, the, there is a little bit of a tension with the last time there were Jarlands and Standard was uh, that Con Standard, right? There are a lot of, like, like Abzan and that kind yep. of stuff. Yep, yep. And in a lot of decks like Abzan Control, uh, and to, to be clear, this is a Con Standard with uh, Con Theros. Sure. But by the time we had uh, uh, the next format, the mana bases were obviously very different and not in need of a... <laughs> Uh, we had like the Jeskai Black mana base and stuff. You did not yeah. need Trilands for that. <laughs> you already right. had perfect four color mm-hmm. mana and standard. So, um, but back then uh, we had a very similar set of mana bases to what we have now, where you have temples, and then back then you had uh, fetchlands and painlands to kind of uh, round it out. Whereas now you have uh, shocklands to go with your temples, which is uh, fairly similar, maybe a little bit better. Um, this is like a little bit of a controversial statement from every time I floated it by my friends, but I think it turned out at the end of that, like Theros Con standard, that it was always incorrect to play Trilands as long as you had temples you could still play. Because temples were better than Trilands at fixing your mana and in general. Because, again, like, as I mentioned for the, like, the modern analysis, uh, the third color of mana isn't really all that important. It's not that much better than two colors of mana off of a land. And the scry effect already gets you part of the way to finding that third color of mana if you're actually looking for it. Uh, we we saw towards the end of that standard format that like it, in a in like Abzan control you were supposed to play four Temple of Silence and four Temple of Malady, and then like two or three Sandsteps as well. So gotcha. There's that to keep in mind when you look at these cards. Obviously, they're a little bit better because of cycling three, but cycling three is a lot. So. All right, so how about this card? If I told you that you were going to live in a world, in an alternate timeline, where there was no bannings in the last year, and you would still have access to the green ley line, eight mana elves plus four gilded goose, Uro, and Oko, and then I told you, I'm going to give you a card called Kinnon Bonder Prodigy, green, blue, 2-2. Two, two. Whenever you tap a non-land permanent for mana, add one mana of any type that permanent produced. And then second ability, seven, five, green, blue. Look at the top five cards of your library. You may put a non-human creature card from among them onto the battlefield. Would that pique your interest? Yeah. <laughs> uh, I'm not entirely sure how relevant this card is actually going to be but that first uh that first sentence is very powerful i'm not sure if it's very powerful in standard i'm not sure if it's very powerful in pioneer for that matter despite the mana dorks existing but uh it doubles man off of arkham's astrolabe it doubles man off of uh soul ring makes four <laughs> four men <laughs> whatever <laughs> uh <laughs> um oh my god what am i thinking the the the, the Mox that activates off of Legendary Permanence. Mox Amber. Amber, yeah. Makes two mana off of Mox Amber. Yep. Like, I don't know. That's pretty sick. Maybe it goes in like an Urza deck or something. Even though I know it doesn't work with Urza. But for 
incomprehensible rules reasons. This doesn't work with the card that you would obviously think it works with. But uh, I think that's where this kind of stuff is good. Like, decks that are able to just generate, like, just absurd turbo amounts of mana for no reason. Oh, right, because the, the blue, generate blue ability on Urza is you tap the creature as a cost, the artifact as a cost, and you get a blue. Yeah. So yeah. it didn't tap for mana. Makes, it got, a, makes it got so tapped, much sense. I know. It got tapped and Urza produced a mana. Yeah. And Urza doesn't tap, so he doesn't get the bonus off Kinnon. Correct. <laughs> Very normal. <laughs> but anyways, that deck does play a lot of cards that generate, that are non-land burmas tapping for mana anyways. And the Urza th- gives you a way to use all that mana, perhaps more efficiently, than the ability off of Kinnon. The magic community is pretty high in this card. This this I saw this selling for $30 off the bat. Um, I'm not sure about that one. <laughs> the, I do think bit, it's good, though. It's interesting that the up if it generates a bunch of mana, it has the built-in go-get-your-monster-to-win function yeah. on it. Unfortunately, this card demands that you play a lot of like enablers, a lot of ways to top for mana, right? And then in those kinds of decks, you generally don't want your payoffs to be non-human creature cards. Unless it happens to be like like Emrakul or something, right? But like... Well, we are going back to Zendikar in the fall, which won't be <laughs> which won't be Eldrazi, but we'll almost certainly have some big nasties. This card's good, and it will see play. Okay, but I'm not sure it's broken. Got it. How about General Kudro of Dronith for the humans deck in modern? One white, black, three three, legendary creature, human soldier. Other humans get plus one plus one when Kudro enters the battlefield. Or another human enters the battlefield, you get to exile a card from an opponent's graveyard, and for two, sack two humans, you get to destroy target creature with power four or greater. Is that enough utility from multiple angles to at least slip this in as a one-of in the human's deck? I think this card's definitely overrated, but also everyone who I know who plays humans is losing their mind about it. Uh, (laughs) I I think a lot of that has to do with the fact that modern right now is just an Uro wasteland. Not wait, Uro? Yeah, Uro Wasteland. I'm confusing Uro and Oko because honestly, Cause it's just how, been a great yeah. year of well-designed <laughs> fair magic cards. So. Yeah, because this cards card beats are fair. Uro, and beating Uro is like absurdly important in modern right now because every format that Uro is legal in is just an Uro disaster. So okay, so so a smattering I'm, of play you would expect. Yeah, if you're not playing Uro, you have to like put Relic of Pretendus in your main deck or something. So. Okay. Yeah, they, they've been really on fire as, with designing cards lately. As a side note, I'm really validated in how good I thought Uro was in our initial review of Theros Beyond. Yeah, Death. you had it right. I definitely underrated it, but I don't think I underrated it that much. I don't really remember. I, I, I was I'm not challenging you on it. I just remember <laughs> thinking it was a damn good card. Yeah. I'm happy about that. All right, how about this little teamer engine? Song of Creation, one teamer, so four total. Enchantment. You may play an additional land on each of your turns. Whenever you cast a spell, draw two cards. <laughs> At the beginning of your end step, discard your hand. Yeah, I don't think they're ever going to learn how to make like four mana enchantments that are either they're either unplayable or unbeatable, and they just prove this over and over again every time they print cards like this. Does, uh, I'm does, sure. I'm pretty certain this card trends towards the unbeatable part of the spectrum, but. Man, I'm sick of magic being like this. I'm sick of magic being like, I'm I'm now playing my four-minute enchantment. Do you lose? Yes, I lose. Okay. So so do you put this on the same tier as like Wilderness Reclamation and Fires of Invention? Yeah, it's the same kind of card like that. It's a strong engine card that's going to get a deck. 
Yeah, almost for sure. Like when the, it has the phrase "Whenever you cast a spell, draw two cards." On. <laughs> that's a disgusting line of text, and that that's under the "You may play an additional land on each of your turns." I, I don't. I don't even want to think about what happens if you have Jeskai Ascendancy and Song of Creation and play at the same time. Oh. <laughs> You're in overkill mode. Listen, I. I don't know what Dan's talking about. Wizards has never had a problem with a card that says whenever you. <laughs> That's not a dangerous two words in magic. The, the upside to this card is that it has a bit of an awkward uh, mana cost, but uh, that might not matter. <laughs> I, I, This did strike me as a card. When I first looked at it, I'm like... Uh, like obviously the ability is nuts right but four mana for an enchantment that's going to be like kind of it's hard to cast and by the time you're casting this you probably could have won with a different enchantment and you're building your deck around and blah 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 but then i'm like eh, that ability so good it probably doesn't matter that this is a pain in the ass to cast it's just going to end up being that it's not a card that you play in an interesting fashion it's just going to be an engine piece similar to underworld breach yeah. Where you just don't cast it until you're ready to win yeah. that turn. LOL, I win. Yeah. In a so, which is unfortunate. So is it is it fair to say you like this one better than the Jeskai one, which is you cast a non-creature spell, draw a card? I don't even remember. That's uh, just literally all that card does. Yep. Uh, yeah, it's probably better. Because you're just getting, you're drawing, because <laughs> yeah. you're just, you're putting extra lands in play, you're drawing tons of cards, you don't care that you're discarding because you're getting... The next thing you cast, you're drawing two more anyway. Yeah, exactly. Um, presumably, if you're playing cards like this, it's because you have like ways to cheat on mana or something. Like, uh, uh, Song of Creation is a card that claims I am ending the game right now. And the other one is more of a, okay, if I untap with this, maybe I'll win. So, All right. Is there is there a constructed card we haven't called out yet that caught your attention? Um, I don't recall there being much that was that interesting. I'm just giving it a quick once over before I forget. There are a lot of like medium cards in the set, like all the mythos cards, the the like big sorceries that have extra effects if you pay more colors of mana into them. I like those cards; I think they're good, but they're not interesting. They're gonna get uh, they're gonna get the companion... standard plays. What you're saying? Yeah, yeah, they're they're yeah, exactly. Stuff like cards. trumpeting gnar, the three three one green blue mutate creature that whenever this creature mutates create a 3-3 green beast creature token that seems like it's good yeah like there are definitely a bunch of like totally passable constructed cards that are at rare and therefore are like playable but not interesting (laughs) did you see did you see the discussion of that card by the way what what was the name of that card james the one you were just something nar g-n-a-r-r uh wait all right let me find it trump yeah, so this was brought up as an example of a trap card because you can either pay three mana for a 3-3 three, three, or you can pay five mana for a 3-3 three, three, that then you later on have to pay mutate costs to get a 3-3. Three, three. And it, I don't remember exactly who it was. And I don't remember exactly what they said, but they're like, this, is, this card was printed to show you that you're not always supposed to mutate. Because mutating with this card is almost always going to be worse unless you are specifically playing like a heavy mutate deck and limited. Yeah, I think this is a limited card. I just thought it was interesting because it was like it was a catch and I didn't really notice it before. But again, as you come to understand mutate more, you're like, oh, yeah, I guess that is how that works. Yep, I agree. 
All right, so we can probably move on then to some of the commander cards. Uh, you, I don't know if you noticed this, Dan, but there is a cycle of free spells that they're printing in these commander decks, um, Commander 2020. Oh, that's and the spells are free if you have a commander, which I hear ah. is relatively common. So there's a free negate. There's a free exile uh, target creature. There is a free your creatures get indestructible till end of turn. Uh, I don't remember what the red one is. Let me see if I can find that. Those cards. That's a free retarget. Oh, yeah. Yeah, those cards sound like they're going to be good in commander and not anywhere else. Uh, deflecting swat. Yeah. <laughs> just just a hunch. <laughs> there's a there's a card called Dismantling Wave. For each opponent, destroy up to one target artifact or enchantment that player controls. And for, if you cycle it for eight, when you cycle Dismantling Wave, destroy all artifacts and enchantments. That's that sounds make, really good in commander. That's going to make lots of friends in your commander pod. <laughs> Uh, and then the top three commanders that, uh, according to EDH Rex so far, are pretty much in line with what we were talking about last week. Zyrus the Writhing Storm, two-teamer for a 3-5 flying. Whenever an opponent draws a card except the first one they draw in each of their draw steps, create a 1-1 green snake creature token. So, Dan, what people are just going to do here is they're going to cast uh, Wheel of Fortune because that's a legal card in Commander. And the the entire table's going to draw 21 cards, and you're going to get 21 snakes. That sounds like a lot of snakes. And then when Zyrus attack, deals <laughs> combat damage to a player, you and that player each draw that many cards. So you, wow. get to play, you get to play some politics with it. There's another card mm. called Zaxara the Exemplary. One Sultai. Oh, I love that one. Yeah, that's right up there. Uh, one Sultai for a 2-3 death touch. It taps for two mana of any color. And whenever you cast a spell with X in its mana cost, create a 0-0 green Hydra creature token, then put X plus one plus one counters on it. So it's super busted in Atraxa counters builds. And mm. if you put a Pemmins or on it, it goes infinite instantly. Um, My favorite the, one is uh, Zoxnar, Searcher of Ruthlessness, which I'm sure they're going to print next year verbatim. Oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> that, that, that one says that Daniel Fournier has to play EDH for the next month straight <laughs> in his basement. <laughs> In front of a mirror with himself. It, I have the I have the spoiler for the for the commander set in front of me, and the first like obviously like thirty entries or whatever are <laughs> all of these. <laughs> yeah. Zaxara, the exemplary Yannick, scavenging sentinel, Zyrus, the writhing storm, Ukima, stalking shadow, Shabraz, the sky <laughs> you, shark. They, they need one. That, they <laughs> need one that's just called Bob. <laughs> Bob. The, yeah. Just Bob. Um, Bob. Bob. Story this employee. Is, you know the re. It, I guess when you look at the naming convention in Ikoria, it's supposed to be a bunch of like crazy monsters and what have you. And the naming convention doesn't feel that bad in that context. It's just we've gotten so used to it; it feels stupid. Like we see it so often. Whereas if the names were way more down the earth, more regularly, then these would seem like exotic and kind of fun yeah. rather than just we have an absurdity creep in magic these days and it's, it's kind of yeah it's kind of reached uh, the apex you know it they once they officially started leaning into it it really made that was it a funny a joke by the way because there appear to be all these cards that are uh zachville apex of i don't know eating donuts I don't know. All right, <laughs> so, so along, along those card. lines, the, the last of the top three commanders, Calamax the Storm Sire, one teamer for a four. four <laughs> Come on! El- <laughs> elemental Dinosaur. Whenever you cast your first instant spell each turn, if Calamax is tapped, copy that spell. You may choose new targets for the copy. 
Whenever you copy an instant spell, put a plus one plus one counter on Kalamax. So there what you do is somebody else somebody else is casting a cultivate, for instance, and you fork it, and then Kalamax forks the fork, and then you do that infinitely, then stop the stack by again forking the original cultivate or whatever. You get a bunch of lands, Kalamax is infinitely large, and you know, roll from there. Kalamax is such a goofy name. I'm Calabax, the elemental dinosaur. I'm going to yep. copy your instant what's, spell. <laughs> I love it. You know what's funny? I mean, is I in, mean Dan, in, it, there's a Shabraz the Sky Shark. It is legendary <laughs> creature, shark bird. 3-3. Three, three. Partner, oh part, we're, we're partners with Brawlin, or yeah, Brawlin Sky Shark Rider. Oh, he's making an epic shark face, too. Wow, so we're not happened. we're not laughing because <laughs> these are good jokes. They're we're laughing at Watsy for this is a cash yeah, goofy crap. Nonsense, man. It's uh, a shark bird. It's a shark bird. Isn't that simply epic, everyone? I, I was also wrong about the dolphin being a fish. They made it an elemental whale. <laughs> and there's it was also a dolphin. <clears throat> I thought it was a dolphin. <laughs> this one is totally one you made up and then put in this list when we weren't looking. Ukima Stalking Shadow is a <laughs> whale wolf. No, it's not. Get out of here. It's, no literally, a, it's literally a wolf with a big whale tail. Super, super practical when stalking oh. through the underbrush. Oh my god. All right, for the next, for the next spoiler season, uh, what we're going to do is Dan has to promise not to look at any of these cards beforehand, and then we'll all have a drink or two, and then we'll read the commander spoiler to Dan. And I'll have to guess which ones are real and which ones aren't. <laughs> you know, what's funny is they, they do all this world building, right? You're, they're, they're supposed to flesh these out. So you've got this local population to Ikoria and they're like look at that giant monster I'm gonna call it Zaxara <laughs> <laughs> like, like are you really like that's what people decide to name their creatures you know when they see something ah that looks like a bad rock yeah. to me I mean there's there's also this thing where there's literally 20 new legends with this naming convention in this commander set alone how are you supposed mm-hmm. to be like fleshing out this many characters Making this many things interesting, like well, they, they gave, of they gave, they gave, was that they totally gave up on lore after that yeah, last really. no- novel they published was literally the worst thing ever written. I mean, isn't their lore director like a, a pedophile allegedly or something? Like, I don't know. Yeah, yes, he basically rewrote Lolita, <laughs> oh. but the guy wasn't a villain. <laughs> that sucks. Yeah, <sighs> yeah, yeah. I mean, like just in this spoiler season alone, there's literally. Like thirty cards that are blocks glory ruler of blacks. Yeah, and maybe that was the wrong word to say there. <laughs> but, anyways, it is very difficult to keep track of them. Like you, you know, as someone who like you know kind of keeps track of EDH a little bit more than you, uh, you remember like the top three from a set, but the rest fade away because you you're not gonna pay attention like you you can't remember the difference between all these yeah unless you're like super deep in the magical my my recollection of legends from when i got into magic around uh god what was it like onslaught uh like odyssey onslaught and like that lore arc and then moving forward from there for years and years is that when a legendary creature showed up it was either something like cute and silly or like a major character in the lore 
And I think because of the popularity of EVH and the need uh, to constantly be printing new powerful cards for that format, because it's the only thing that sells anymore because of the myriad of genius design decisions they've made over the years and how they've impacted the standard, um, that they basically have to constantly be printing new and new and new and new and new and and powerful multicolored legends. And at this point, the identity of a like powerful multicolor legend is just meaningless. Like it's not anything interesting anymore. It's just oh yeah, it's another mythic elemental snake dinosaur bird elemental. Oh yeah, nightmare. Yeah, we we've dinosaur. touched on this a little bit before, um, and it's part of the reason why I and many other I think people who had a, a soft spot for EDH have cooled on the format a little bit, as it was really fun when it wasn't an official format. And you, you know, there weren't that many multicolor creatures that you could choose from and they were weird and you had to do work to find cards and there wasn't stuff printed for EDH, which made, it really gave it a fun identity. And yeah, once wizards turned their capitalism cannon on it, Love it. it just sucked all of the, um, creativity and, um, fascinating aspects of the format out of it. And yeah, so well, and you're right, and then that leads to printing a zillion commanders, and there's no longer like interesting differences between them. I mean, you can look through the Simic. The Simic commanders are especially bad because you could build any, you could build a EDH deck with a Simic commander and replace it with one of like six commanders, and effectively, it's the same deck. Yeah, that sounds like not what was interesting about Commander. Do you see people maybe mm-hmm. getting interested in like Canadian Highlander as a way away from that, or? Uh, yeah, so, can, yes, Canadian Highlander, so refresh my memory, is that the 250 cards? Oh, I have no idea. Because <laughs> there's, there's, there's competitive EDH and there's Canadian Highlander. I think Canadian Highlander was 250 cards. I know it's, like, big, and, dumb decks, and people kind of just play, like, every good card ever in them. Let me take a look here. No, Canadian, Canadian Highlander is 100 card singleton. Is that, yeah, just straight up, just like no like no commanders or whatever? Yeah. Okay, well, maybe that's not the answer. But either way, I refuse to learn about it. So, <laughs> not my thing. Again, it's cool if it is someone's thing. It's not mine. There's, there, there is not, as far as I know, a EDH replacement at the moment. Uh, I, and, and honestly, it's the thing is that the, the EDH community is just happy with EDH. <laughs> so, true. like, they're yeah. not happy yes. with all the card, all the cards, etc. And it was hilarious when that blue red companion got banned before it was even released. <laughs> God, that was so funny. <laughs> uh, that day, that day ruled. That was yeah. like back to back. There's this card we're printing. By the way, it's banned <laughs> immediately. <laughs> and then, like an There's... hour later, they had to issue the statement on Space Godzilla. Yeah, oh god, that was fantastic. There's uh e- e- EDH I think is still popular with your average LGS goer. It's more of a the people who are kind of disenfranchised a little bit are people like me and who have been around for a very long time and are just like who back in my legendary day. Creature back in my day. Yeah. A little bit. But but I, I bet you that the sorry. dissatisfaction with the current state of EDH and also the dissatisfaction with the general direction of magic tack hand in hand. All right, I, God, I wish have, this wasn't the best game in the world so I could quit. We have one more card to evaluate for okay. competitive play, actually, that we forgot. And then we'll let you, let you get on with your life. Yeah, as what busy life? As, <laughs> as busy and 
and varied as it is. Uh, I, I um, got out of I got out of the K-hole of Final Fantasy VII remake and immediately bought Final Fantasy VII on my Switch. Not my yeah, my Switch. So nice. God, <laughs> not doing God why do I let you on my podcast? So, <laughs> so luminous broodmoth two no, two two white three four. Whenever your creature you control without flying dies, return it to the battlefield under its owner's control with a flying counter on it. So fun fact fun fact about this card before I. Uh, say anything about it when i first saw the card i saw like the extended art normal version of it and multiple people on my timeline were freaking out like oh my god they printed mothra and this was like the first thing i saw of that day of absolute chaos because i slept in till you know 3 p.m uh, as one does so uh, i saw this uh this card and everyone's like oh my god it's mothra i'm like hey, that's that's funny it's like mothra <laughs> big big moth right that's really funny <sighs> then I saw Mothra, Supersonic Queen, and learned, oh, yeah, no, that, that's Mothra. <laughs> oh, actual Mothra. Oh, this sucks. <laughs> so I hate this card for that reason, and that reason only. <laughs> All right, is it playable uh, the, somewhere? Yeah, for sure. Um, I was, a, I'm a little reluctant to evaluate this card, uh, with the like glowing review I, I want to give it because I had a similar opinion towards the similar card from, I, I think it was, uh, there was, it might've been the set before it. Who knows? Everything blends together now. Uh, the one that was a black, black two, four, four flyer. Uh, it basically said whenever a creature control dies, exile it or something, or like make it, whatever you make a, a one, one copy of that card. And I thought that card was oh, going yeah. to be like very good. But there's just no home for it because the things that go on in standard are not like, oh, here's a four mana four four flyer with a really good ability on it. That's not what happens in standard right now. What happens in standard is I play my four color my four mana enchantment, look at you, and uh, then flip a coin to see if I have the hand that wins the game now or not. Like <laughs> the things that are going on in standard have a power level where cards like this that are like good cards with good stat lines that have powerful. Uh, incremental advantage abilities on it are completely meaningless. Just not a part of the game at all. It's always a, it's it's only about punching your opponent in the face with a more broken card than they're punching you back in the face with. So that sucks. But this card has other potential as well, where it could be a part of some kind of uh, combination strategies and other formats. I so I, it's a little hard. It's a little harder to combo. Actually, there's a, there's a bunch of. I think the, I, I keep thinking about comes into play abilities, right? Like if you Uro into this, yeah. you get Uro, then flying Uro triggers, and Uro goes back to the graveyard again. Yeah, like that's kind of sick. My, my question would be: Is not is this card good? It's is this card playable outside of infinite combos? Because we know that it's you know probably vi- it might may or may not be viable in infinite combos, and we can see how those work. But is it good if you aren't trying to play an infinite combo with it? Yeah, that's basically how I was trying to evaluate it. Um, I'm not certain that's going to be the case in any format outside of standard. And I'm as again, this is a powerful card. It's just like standard hasn't been about just normal powerful cards lately. It has been about absurd cards and absurd cards only. And this card is not absurd. Mm-hmm. It's merely very good. Hmm. Well, or is it it's it, or is it absurd but absurd in the wrong way? Uh, like it's it's absurd, but it's too slow. Yeah, maybe it's absurd over too many turns. Maybe. It's a reasonable, uh, reasonable read on the card. 
Have you seen any lists with this yet? No. Uh, although, to be fair, I haven't really been digging into lists for this set right now. Uh, again, as much as I love this game, I'm a little disillusioned with it right now. So uh, Fair enough. <laughs> I, I, I certainly can't stop myself from thinking about all these cards a lot and uh, like planning out game states and whatnot. <laughs> but uh, my urge to like, well, consume content relating to it has... Uh, <laughs> Let's let's just it's, put it, it let's just put it this way: uh, Final Fantasy VII remake. It it will be clear to anyone listening to our podcast that you <laughs> have at the very least been scrawling violent unhinged manifestos about this set. Like, <laughs> but but looking at deck lists is a bridge too far. <laughs> deck lists, right, I want to see. I, I want to build my own decks. I would never net deck. Net deck is cheating. Truth. I, I agree. Have I told you about for my new thing where sideboarding is also cheating? <laughs> if your main deck isn't ready to handle the whole format well, you better go back to the drawing board, cheater. True. Yeah. All right. Huge, huge thank that. you to Daniel Fournier, uh, critic of sideboards, <laughs> Mothras. And the mutate mechanic. Co- complexity creep. Ooh. Wizards pandering to cultural paradigms that are not their own. Whatever else. <laughs> Anything that I don't like. Ugh. How dare they not appeal to me? <laughs> Thank you very much. We, we, Unfortunately. Da- are, are, <laughs> Daniel, are you aware of the next set that we're, we, we're bringing you back for? Do, do, do you know uh, what the core set is all about this summer? Do I want to know? It's Teferi themed. I'm, I'm pretty sure you're going to get a four mana Teferi to play with. Are you kidding me? Nope. It's Teferi themed? Yep. <sighs> well, like the last one was Chandra themed. Every time they've, right? It was Chandra? Every time they've printed a Teferi lately, it's it's been busto. Yeah, nothing. Nothing's wrong has come of that. So this, I'm sure can, they won't make any design mistakes in that set. Can, can it even be possible that that four mana Teferi's not busted? I, only- I would say, I would say either they're going to, like, in the past, I would say that there's an equal chance of it being busted, or they're making it so bad that there's no chance of it being busted because they've made so many mistakes recently. But. The way they design like those kinds of flagship cards these days is instead of ever being careful, they simply just like make it cost two less mana for no reason. Like cards are only broken now. Like and, there's no and, bad cards. It's all like, oh, this card's really good, but there's a two mana uh, you in the game legal for some reason. So you, you don't get to play Luminous Brood Moth because Oko exists or whatever. Like. Well, and here's the thing. I think I'm pretty sure the set is when Teferi was younger. So I'm guessing you're going to get mono blue four mana, like two, two blue Jace Mind Sculptor casting cost or something. (laughs) Imagine it's just literally Jace the Mind Sculptor with a new name. I I was going to make the joke. They're just going, they're going to print Jace the Mind Sculptor with a one, two blue white casting cost instead of two blue blue. It'll be the exact same tax, except they'll change the casting cost by one color. Jace the Mind Sculptor and Pioneer seems fine. Sure. <laughs> Still wouldn't make people's creatures are worse, so bouncing them isn't as bad. So we'll uh, we'll give you a holler when that drops uh, virtually, since cards don't apparently come out in paper anymore. <laughs> Unless you're buying them well, on Magic hopefully, Online hopefully by trading by in sets, because apparently set. you can. Per- <laughs> hopefully, if not, this is going to be a hopefully. really degenerate cast. By this point, it's going to be like Howard Hughes in his movie studio. <laughs> with the the fourteen inch nails next time, yeah, why not? Uh, okay, it was a pleasure to have you on, Daniel. Thanks again for joining Thanks us. Thanks as always for having me. Uh, it was fun. 
Take care. Stay safe out there. All righty. Now that we've uh, got rid of Mr. Fournier, moving on to our cards to watch. We have another week of uh, both Magic Online and Paper Cards to watch. We'll start off with uh, three of my own picks that we've been discussing in the Discord today. Uh, MGG Price Pro Trader Discord. Uh, for Magic Online, the treasure chest just got a, a major reset uh, this morning. So there are some cards that were not included in those chests and others that are but seem to be overcoming that inclusion that look like solid picks. So I've got three here for you. Okay. Every Lurker of the Lock. Call this a one to six week timeline. Things tend to be a little shorter on a Magic Online. Things can move real fast, in fact. Entirely possible that anybody who hears this four days from now already be behind the eight ball on these, but, you know, we do what we can. Uh, so Emery is all over the place in modern, strong EDH card. It's currently a buck 25. Nobody's drafting uh, Throne of Eldraine anymore. Could easily see this uh, getting to a dollar 75 for 40% gains. Fairly similarly, uh, Dryad of the Legion Grove is one of the top 50 modern cards at this point. Uh, shows up in those uh, Amulet Titan decks, and I think also in the green-red Ponza builds, if I'm not mistaken. Uh, one to six week timeline on this as well. Confidence level eight. It's a Theros Beyond Death card, of course. Currently about $1.20 as well. Pretty similar to Emery. Um, and I could also see it going to, say, $2. Um, if you look at the Emery pattern... As it stopped being drafted, it took off and later fell and looks like it probably will take off again. Dryad is not in Treasure Chest, neither is Emery, and that gives them some strong likelihood of success. And then the third card on this list is a true super staple, Thoughtseize. Um, one to six week timeline. It's already been on the upswing for a while here, but it's been in the Treasure Chest since January at a relatively modest include, and it's just overcoming that, which... Let, leads me to believe that there's just so much need for Thoughtseize that at the current rate that they appear in the treasure chests, uh, it's going to keep going. So currently you can get them around f- somewhere between 14 and $15. And I think if you got it, plan to get out around 20 for, say, 38% gains or so, you'd be doing pretty well. Well, I think Thoughtseize I'm definitely a fan of, even without knowing the minor economic forces uh, at play for moto specifically because that card has gotten a real uh, a real new lease on life with pioneer anyone who didn't already have thought seizes and wasn't really getting into modern or was playing modern without thought seizes suddenly finds himself now looking at pioneer i'm sorry did i say that correctly anyone who was playing modern without thought seizes or just didn't get into the format at all now has to go buy thought seizes to play pioneer basically so getting that new format to revitalize some new interests is good for the card for sure but all three seem quite solid um given that we know that they're format staples essentially across the emery board. and dryad or becoming emery there. and dryad are still in print but not in the treasure chest but because where everybody's gonna be switching over to Ikoria draft shortly here i think both of them are very safe and whether it takes a week or six months magic online is the safest the safest of specs at the moment um so i think they're these are pretty solid now, over on the paper side of things, my first pick of the week is one that I airdropped into our Best Ideas uh, channel on the ProTrader Discord a couple days ago. Damnation Judge Foils were something that I picked up uh, in a huge order that I of buy list exits uh, from Card Kingdom well, uh, maybe two months ago and just got my hands on recently um, as my collected package of uh, uh, US-based specs arrived 
uh, just last week, put it in isolation for a week, then popped it open. And I started looking looking up the Damnation Judge Foils and realizing that there are very, very few of these still around at about the $40 price point. I could easily see them getting to 60 The only uh, flip side of this is that I could see Damnation catching a reprint some point this year if there's a master set towards the end of summer, as has been rumored, or if there is that doesn't get bounced because of economic situations, or they could put something like Damnation in the Commander Legend set in the fall. Um, one of the if it dodges both of those, or those are undersold because the global economics are still poor. Either way, you're going to get some period of time here where the Judge Foils could drift up. Now, of course, paper demand being what it what it is, uh, a bit of a mixed bag, I, I would say. Your odds of being able to out this before it catches a reprint are worse than usual. But if you're looking to pick up a copy of the Judge Foil, regardless of whether it gets a reprint, the Judge Foil is a now or never scenario. Okay. I, I mean, the card is awesome. The Judge Foil is very cool. It seems not terribly likely to see reprint and anything remotely constructed uh, pointed because it's not really big in any constructed formats at this point, And it's also not legal in Pioneer. However, uh, it's obviously a great EDH card um, and having access to the cool judge version of it is uh, in EDH is, is ideal. It's a good format for these types of cards. So I think that's probably a very solid choice for that reason. All right, so what's your first pick of the week? Well, um, I, I'm, I'll am i start here, but I, was, I have two EDH cards this week, but I want to make a, a small diversion to just talk about the greater movement price trends we've seen. And this is uh, basically the second week or so that we've had uh, Ikoria Commander spoilers. These are the first real spoilers to drive Commander Desire since Throne of Eldraine came out in October. So we are a solid six months since the last slate of playable commanders because uh, Theros didn't bring us any. And our paper cards, top paper movers this week was five cards. So, and one of them, two of them didn't have really much to do with EDH. Now there has been some movement around commander with all this new commander product, Decree of Silence being sort of the biggest name of them. But this has been, for what we I would have expected, were we not where we are in terms of the pandemic, uh, it's 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 nothing, right? Like this is this is nothing compared to what you would anticipate having. So you know, I have two EDH cards, and they're ones I have my eyes on. But um, just be aware that while you have seen some cards move due to EDH, the new EDH spoilers, it is far less than what we might otherwise anticipate. Yep. The the only. And whatever that means for the longer term the, here. The only counter I have to any of that is just that EDH is the only format people are likely to be building and playing at home. And I have sold quite a few EDH cards this week. Um, I'm off pace versus this time last year for sure. Heading into War of the Spark, things were selling like hotcakes. But cards are still selling. I mean, this is, it's it's not, the the market is not as terrible as it will be in three or six months if this if we're all still stuck at home um uh i i don't disagree with that i've sold some cards this week too um it's just 
I'm looking at it and going, yes, some cards are moving, but the amount of excitement and the amount of new cards being bought for these commanders is way less than I would end. Yeah, you would see. And, and I think the demand cliff is going to come sooner and be sharper. So some of the stuff that has deeper inventory will retrace. Uh, everything, as we've been saying the last few weeks, has to be viewed on a one year plus horizon. And then if you're if things resolve quicker than that, all the better. Yeah. So having said that. Um, I'm looking at the top commanders for uh, the set, and it seems like Calamax, Zyrus, and Zexara are all right at the same level between 120 and 130 decks this past week on EDA trucks. So it seems to be pretty close. Gabby's just behind them at 104, but you know all that can be attributed to probably within the margin of error. So they're all roughly the same popularity. I anticipate that Calamax and Zyrus will probably be the longest, the the longest standing commanders here. I think Zexar is probably close, but I expect Gavi to fall off in terms of popularity, a little too cute, a little too gimmicky. Uh, so this week I tried to look at Calamax and Zexar and where some of the opportunities might lie there. I'm going to start this week with Twincast uh, based on Calamax. God, I have to keep flipping back and forth and checking these writings. Twincast is the blue fork, originally printed in Saviors of Kamigawa. Calamax, of course, is a general that copies spells if he's tapped. Um, so you can pick up non-foil twin casts at about $4 right now. Now, twin cast has three printings. It's from Saviors of Kamigawa, 10th edition, and Magic 2010. So the newest copy of twin cast is a decade old. Saviors of Kamigawa, of course, 10th edition might as well not exist in terms of how, well, I mean, they do, but like the number of copies they add is insignificant. So, you're looking at like, I think it's probably 10 to 20-ish, 25, 30 maybe copies of each printing. And I don't, it's not distributed evenly. So across the board, the price is floating around $4. There's not a lot of these generally out there. I think if a hundred people decided to buy twin casts, I'm pretty sure that's basically the entire market, uh, at least on TCG Player right now, which uh, we've given disclaimers about before, but just in case you haven't listened in a while, maybe not all inventory is listed on TCG Player right now. Some stores have turned off their inventory, so supply may actually be deeper than we can tell. But given the information that we have, Twincast is pretty low supply across all three copies. It's going to be an auto-occlude in anyone playing Calamax. All the printings are very old. It's not in the... Um, mystery booster so you're still you know you, there's still the risk of some reprints later this year especially in like the blue in the edh master set but barring that it seems like it's in pretty good shape uh, foils would probably are, i'm sure are quite good too uh their supply on that is so low that i didn't really get into it and the non-foils looked good as well but i would say non-foils at four and i think the foils are like six or seven should would be one of the best gainers for cal max if he does manage to push some prices Yeah, that, that all makes sense to me. And I, I think the forks are the, you know, the first cards people are going to reach with, reach for when building this deck because that's kind of the whole point. Um, so <clears throat> I can see the twin cost foils, which have three printings, but they're all old, um, being stuff that dries up kind of whether it's in three weeks like it might normally have been or it takes three months, they're probably going to be gone uh, sooner or later. Uh you can, I just have to make an aside here. I was looking through the EDA truck page for Calamax. People do not know how to know how to build that commander. I don't think anyone on EDA truck yet realizes that he says if he's tapped. They're like, 
there's like two cards on that page that tap your commander. And it's like, you guys got to figure out a way to get this guy tapped or all of your hopes and dreams are, fall apart. So remember that when you build your Calamax deck, you have to find a way to tap him. And, and Gosh, what is it? Uh, Ro- God, that Rogue's Passage and uh, that Shroud are two good options, but you need more than that. Yeah, you, both Calamax and uh, Zyrus, is that correct? Zyrus, the snake, the, the writhing the snake storm, um, are in the same deck. And if you're rebuilding, <clears throat> you can keep them both in the deck together because you can play a bunch of the forks because uh, you're going to be playing a bunch of the wheels. So you're forking wheels and getting just obscene amounts of things going on and getting infinite snakes and whatever. And you're probably running opposition, as I mentioned last week or the week before, uh, to use the snakes mm. to tap stuff down. And you can also use that to tap your Calamax. Yeah, that would be good. I don't think that showed up on the page. Uh, probably not built correctly. If if they're in the deck together, right? Like you can if you're building Calamax as the lead instead of Zyrus, then it's a different story. Um, however, so my for my next pick is uh, definitely a whales pick. This is Beta Basalt Monoliths. You can get them out there in the anywhere from 140 to 180 dollar range, depending on where you're getting them. This probably this is the kind of card where people might be unloading them. Um, you know, cards they don't necessarily need that carry a high price tag, but these are really hard to find. Like I pick, I got one through a- Abu, like ABU Unlimited's buy list maybe a year and a half ago for about a hundred dollars uh, worth of buy list credit, and at this point you're hard pressed to find them under that 140, 150 range. They're never not going to be good in EDH. They're very unlikely to be banned so long as Soul Ring and all the other fast mana is still viable. They just got additional infinite combos, like with Kin and Bonder Prodigy. Um, it taps for four mana and untaps for three, so you go infinite right away. Lots and lots and lots of uh, whale deep pocket EDH players are going to want this card in a deck at some point, and I could easily see it like two, three years out being a three or $400 card. Sure. I think that that's all good. All good. I, you know, with, with any of these sort of near mint beta cards, it feels like you're ever unlikely to miss. The worst case scenario is it doesn't appreciate as fast as you want it to. And the opportunity cost can be kind of high. Um, but I think there's, you know, renewed demand for Basalt Monolith with the, the two infinite combos that were printed here in Ikoria. So if you can find a, a mint copy for a good price, I think it's very unlikely that you're going to be unhappy with it. And it's probably a good way to turn some of your floating store credit into, um, you know, consolidate it a little bit, keep an eye out on some sales some of these stores might be having, you know, like I have a, a chunk of credit at a couple different stores at this point. And I should really be keeping an eye out in case any of them do any sales. Uh, you know, maybe I might pay a little more. I might pay a 20% premium for a card like this, but having that out would be, uh, would be nice to move some smaller stuff into a nice solid card like this, which is just so unlikely to, to go poorly for you. Yeah. As a long, as a long range pick, it seems real rock solid. The, uh, <clears throat> yep. so what's your next pick? All right, so the other card I had on my radar this week is a bit more of a stretch. And, you know, I'm going to level with you guys. I've got some number of them. I don't even know. I bought this card so long ago, I couldn't even tell you how many are floating around it back there. But it's Voral of the Hallclade, which is always a, a great, such a weird name. Voral 
of the hall clade. It feels like every word is one letter off. But Voril of the Hall Clade is a three mana one four from the Dragon's Maze, and he doubles the counters on a permanent. Essentially, for each counter on target artifact, creature, or land, put another one of those counters. So if you point Voral at your Ozolith, it doubles all of the counters on the Ozolith. And Ozolith, of course, takes all types of counters and moves them around. So you can do some really wacky stuff with this. So he also, now the reason he popped up on my radar is I was looking at the Zaxar. God, after talking to Dan, it feels ludicrous saying these names out loud. Looking at the Zaxara decks, which are very Hydra-focused, which use, obviously, 1-1 one, one counters, you can point Voral at your Hydras and double the number of counters on them, or you can point it at Ozolith and double the number of counters on that. So you have some choices there. Also, you know, you also get the target Planeswalkers and some other odds and ends. Uh, so just a lot of utility. Voral has been pretty slow to move, of course. Like, we're talking about a, a foil from Dragon's Maze that currently costs $1.50. Um, there hasn't been a tremendous amount of demand for him, but th- is the supply is definitely getting low. Uh, there's under tw- there's tw- fewer than twenty copies below five dollars, but you can get them at a dollar fifty. So, and then there's not that many copies above five dollars either. So, will this finally be the 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 straw that breaks the camel's back and foil Vorals finally move a bit because we have yet another thing to double counters on? Hopefully. I mean, I would like to see that happen. Uh, and I think it's reasonable, but, you know, no promises. But, you know, if you're paying a dollar to a dollar fifty for foil vorals, um, you can stash them away. And then ideally you can buy listies down the road for three or four dollars, maybe sell them individually at, at five to six if you're lucky. Uh, you know, and if I live the dream, it'll be eight. But I'm not holding my breath for that unless XR ends up obscenely or Ozolith ends up obscenely popular in EDH. Um, of course, all predicated on pandemic land i think this is actually a really good pick because you have a very strong chance of a double or a triple up even if you're just going to buy list um which allows you to go a little deeper than normal you don't want to be 30 40 copies on a foil like this because it's i bet that's how many i have the the buy list probably (laughs) won't take 100 at a time but it's already been printed a bunch of times in non-foil. It got reprinted in Commander Anthology Volume 2, Commander 2016. It was <clears throat> in Dragon's Maze, which is a notoriously cheap set. And it was also reprinted in the Ravnica Allegiance Guild kits. So I think the chances of it getting a reprint in the next two years are next to zero. Like, There's no way they prioritize this in the Commander Legends set. No, I wouldn't think so. And and, and you're right. And I, I, I failed to mention that, but I did notice it when I was looking it up is just there's, it's got plenty of non-foil printings, but this is the only foil printing. Yeah. And so, I mean, it could show up in another commander deck, but it's already, they've already been down the ancillary path with it a couple of times. So it, I feel like it's going to be on the back burner for quite, quite a while. And I love it when there's like five printings, but only one foil printing. And it's the oldest of the printings. That's just usually a recipe for it's my bread. Really, really solid. Uh, results i've also got it it's my bread and it's, butter it's locked <laughs> into my attracts accounters 2020 upgrade that i update that i did last week um yeah i mean Varel is just automatic in that deck is as likely as doubling season or uh anointed procession or whatever else depending on how you're yeah, building cards it. pretty gross with doubling season <laughs> and and everything there's so many okay. other things that double like between the ozolith and corpse jack menace and all sorts of other stuff or if you're making a tokens build, it's yep. a whole other story. 
I looked up corpse jack minus two and I was going to I by for I would probably would have picked it if it didn't show up in uh, UMA or IMA at uncommon. If it wasn't an IMA at uncommon, that card probably would have been worth checking out. In in attracts like planeswalkers, I don't run it because of course it can't play put counters on planeswalkers. But in attracts like counter creatures, it's for sure auto yeah, bonkers. All right. So my last pick of the week is Demonic Pack Foils, because if that deck goes anywhere in Pioneer, if it does well online, paper will follow eventually, maybe. And this isn't the first time we've seen janky Demonic Pack decks, so I'm not dying to jump in on this given where we're at with the global situation, but there aren't that many foils of Demonic Pack lying around. I don't see it as being something they want to reprint anytime soon. They certainly don't need it in standard. And I don't see it being a priority in either a master style set that was aimed at competitive uh, formats, nor being a priority for Commander Legends. So I think these foils are just going to drain slowly but surely out. And if it comes faster, awesome. Currently, you can get them around 8. I would be targeting an exit around 15. And if I got to sit on them for 12 to 18 months to get there, that's totally fine. Yeah, I think that I'm I'm right there with you. This is a the type of card that we've definitely seen do some work so far. It hasn't really hit it out of the ballpark at this point, but that opportunity is still on the table. Um, is this that deck? I don't know. It could be. Could, maybe it's not. But if it's not this one, it'll probably come eventually. Uh, so, you know, if you could snag these on sale, get them cheap wherever, when you're kind of doing your other purchasing, um, yeah, I think that you'll probably not be, you will not be disappointed most likely. All right. That's a wrap for this week, folks. Uh, where can people find you online, Travis? Well, before, before we finish, I'm going to be the one to drag this out for a moment. Uh, the one thing we didn't get a chance to talk about was the secret layer fetch lands. Oh yeah. (laughs) Okay. So. I had to ask about this on Twitter. So the the it was announced I don't know however many weeks ago that there's going to be a secret layer with fetch lands in it, one of one of each of the enemy lands, the scalding tarns and so forth. Uh, and I guess we were told it was going to be released through the stores, so it was not a online distribution like the other secret layers. It was sent to stores specifically, um, and. I don't remember the exact wording, but they said it would be a little more expensive than one of the other ones. And I don't think they revealed at the time. Oh, and they did say it was going to be limited supply, too, because I talked about most stores getting fewer than 10. Well, I guess I I kept seeing it pop up on my timeline today that people were really angry about it. And I wasn't exactly clear why. Um, Apparently, it's, you know, like it's going on eBay and Star City selling it for like $350, which works out to, uh, you know, about 70 bucks, $75 per fetch land. Uh, and to be honest, I didn't look at the prices of them before. We no, nowhere close to that. Nowhere close recording. to that as a whole. The um, the thing yeah. here is that Blake Rasmussen, who's PR lead for Watsi, on the cast where they revealed this, he made a statement along the lines of, "You'll probably be able to find this a little over 160 or so." Did he actually yeah, yeah. say yes, that yes, price? Yes. He named a okay. price. Now, Wizards canceled okay. their MSRP manufacturer's suggested retail price a while back, which in theory is supposed to allow, well, not allow, it's supposed to assist the distribu- distributors and vendors in terms of figuring out their own pricing based on their their total, their overall profile. And what I mean by that is that 
it shouldn't surprise anybody that Star City Games is posting this at a higher price than maybe your local LGS is offering it to you, you know, so you can, as a thank you for you helping them keep the doors open. Because Star City is in a better position than your local LGS. They have a much greater overhead profile in terms of the tour and all of their writers and all of their staff and the size of their operation and their real estate and whatever. So their margins have always been, by necessity, higher than other vendors. Certainly, if you're buying a card from me, you're going to pay less than you're paying from Star City Games. But it all just kind of depends on whether you want the cheapest possible price or you want the, you know, your perceived reliability of getting cards from the vent, the most known vendor, um, according to you. The people ragging on Star City for choosing a price that was above what they could have charged, I think, was mostly ignorant because. If you don't like that price, don't buy the product from them. If you don't like anybody's price, don't buy the product. You don't need it. And if your point is that fetches should have been released to be cheap, you're, you've are you clearly missed the part where they, Wizards already promised you that they're going to give them to you within the year. Like, if probably within six months. They've already name-dropped that fetches will appear in another product this year. Now, if I have to get... People have been saying Commander Legends or Zendikar, but they've already said they're not giving them to us in standard, and I don't think they fit in Commander Legends. Um, I think that set's already going to be chock-a-block full of value. So the most likely scenario is that the rumored Master Set is going to include them, which then suggests that the Master Set is focused on modern plus either Legacy or Pioneer. Um, Now, Pioneer, of course, fetches are banned, but we'll see how that all develops. The the bottom line is you're going to get fetches and booster packs within six months. You don't need these ones. This is a premium product for whales that is aimed at getting a big fat margin in the pockets of the vendors so that they have a better chance of surviving. Now, this set was designed pre-COVID for sure, and this whole thing was set up pre-COVID. But keep in mind that even without COVID, LGSs were a little stung over the period of time where Wizards had been pocketing all of the margin from the secret layer products. And it just behooved them to toss some scraps to the vendors so they got a little opportunity to do the FT, you know, the, the FTV routine that they did for years. It, I, I was a little surprised because Wizard, you know, the secret layer comes out and people are like, oh my God, it's terrible for local stores, right? It's, it's, you're selling, Wizards is now selling cards direct to consumer. They're bypassing local stores. It's terrible for the stores. All, all pretty much true, right? Like not debating that. So then they take what's probably going to be the most popular, supposedly the most popular secret layer with of the year. Um, also, you know, reasonably likely to be the most expensive one, a, a, a true premium secret layer and giving it to the stores to sell the players as a way to give them, you know, kind of the way they used to do the, uh, oh, what am I thinking of? Yeah, the FTVs. And people are cranky that they like if they don't go give the local store something, then they continue to just like dagger them even more. And it's you know it's really very obvious that it's you know, oh the best the, the product that they really could have made you know they could have made a month's rent on this product and you took it away from them. Uh, and they do give it to them, and then you complain that there's not enough. And I I, I you know I didn't sift through all of the conversation on Twitter. I just saw it kind of like coming up in conversation. A little bit. Uh, and I was like, all right. So I tweeted out and I said, could someone just explain to me what the problem with this product is? Like, why are people 
frustrated with this other than the fact that it's kind of expensive, right? It's like $350 or so for the five fetches. And I got a couple responses, but all of it mostly just at the end of the day seems to be people hand bringing that fetch lands aren't that wizards wasn't willing to print a ton of fetch lands and make them $10 for everybody. Like this seems to be essentially it felt like uh, the Talarian Academy guy was in my mention seven times. Like why aren't fetch lands more affordable? Everyone should have access to them. They should wizards should have, you know, put these in the mail to me for 20 bucks for all five. And that's essentially what I needed out of this. So that was the only real response I got when it just is like, okay, we're, there's no conversation to be had here. You're, you're, you're wrong. And I, and I don't know where else to go with this, especially because this is, this is not even a, this is not a product designed for wide distribution secret layer at its core. It's raison d'etre is that it's a collector's product. This is this is something produced for collectors. So this is not intended to like m- provide mass distribution of a of a card to players. It's who also need not it. that long since the last reprint of these fetch lands. First of all, five of the ten fetch lands, which for many purposes, including EDH, cover your bases and do what you need them to do, are still relatively cheap. The other five that through the way the way the places that they were reprinted never really got that cheap. Um, the Z- original Zendikar five. Uh, were last seen in Modern Masters 2017. And Modern Masters 2017 cratered the prices on those real fast, but lots of players bypassed getting them, thinking they were going to go even cheaper, and they rebanded quickly because everybody needs them. Like, we talked about those and called them out on cast at the time. And they, they, they were back up 40% in under six months. So, and then they've climbed steadily since, especially Misty Rainforest and Scalding Tarn because they're the most net needed for Modern uh, and Legacy. So they're going to get them in a booster pack. It's only been three years or so since the last time they had a shot at them. All I can tell you is get them this time. Like, stop messing around. If you need the cards, get the cards. And if you can't afford them even at the at the price they show up in those booster packs, then just rethink your strategy. Maybe you should play with the other fetch lands because they're cheaper and suck up that your deck is a little worse. I think one of the most, especially if magic you're on magic on a budget, just accept that your decks are going to be a little worse than everybody else's and revel in the fact that you didn't pay as much as they did and you're still mostly competitive. And over an EDH, yeah, over know, an EDH, I'm not even sure you need them, to be honest. There's so many different land cycles in EDH at this point, so many mana rocks that key off the fact that you're just playing commander in the first place that, of course, your deck is better with. But if you don't have them, you'll be all right. You can still play a fun game of commander. Well, and I would agree that if you're, unless your goal is to play competitive legacy or modern, they're unnecessary. Um, And you're not getting into competitive legacy or modern unless you're, I mean, people are going to do it, but you can't, you, you shouldn't be expecting to play competitive legacy or modern unless you're willing to make a significant financial investment because that's just the way they've set it up. I, I'm, I'm not. I don't want to take the position to say, oh, they were cheaper before. You should have just bought them then. Like that, that feels kind of, kind of shitty to say to somebody. Maybe they weren't in the position then. Um, you know, we can talk about they were cheaper then, but you know, what did they really get down to? Like $25, $30 a piece. They were still pricey, uh, you know, for a lot of people out there. So I, I don't want to tell anyone that they, that they did it wrong or something. It's just, 
I, I more just want to highlight that if you're frustrated that this is too expensive and you were hoping this was going to be the opportunity to, to pick them up, um, that, you know, remember the product line that they're in. It's not designed to expand accessibility. And, uh, you know, you just, you, you have to consider that whether you like it or not, um, and whether you think Wizards is correct or not, whether I think Wizards is correct or not, and whether they are correct or not, they have a clear intention with how they handle the true AAA S-tier cards like fetch lands and how they want to use those to sell yep. product. And that that strategy means they are going to keep those prices up. You don't have to like it, but just recognize that it's intentional. They're going to keep doing it. And that's just the way it's going to work. So I'm not, I don't want to tell anyone that they should feel bad that they can't buy them or that they didn't buy them, but just be aware that this isn't going to change. Well, and, and that's the broader point about magic in general. This, this has always been yeah. a pay to collect to win game it's designed like that it's only going to get worse over time it's owned by a big c capitalist company who has no idea what to do except to try to make more of your money so if you don't like any of that then this is just not the game for you or you can pick one of Mm -hmm. the many ways to play magic for nearly free by buying the 99 percent of magic cards that are worth less than a dollar like there they've printed tens of thousands of worthless cards at this point many of which are just slightly inferior to the very expensive versions. So, and there are budget deck options broadcast on YouTube and in various content channels all the time that give you fun, quirky decks to play in a variety of formats. There's an entire format called Popper that blah, 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 beating the dead horse. So a couple, a couple yeah. of wrap-up points. <clears throat> the actual cost to big vendors from Wizards was somewhere around $125 to $130. So for Wizards to have tripped over themselves suggesting it would be 160 plus, I'm not clear if Blake stepped in it and didn't said what he didn't mean to say, or if they were trying to deliberately shame the vendors into making the product cheap. But I, but keep, so, but keep in mind that well, if they are if the vendors were paying 130. The idea that they would be anywhere in the 140 to 180 range is ridiculous because the margin's too small for the overhead scenario that your average LGS runs. I, I, I'm going to pause just, just a brief aside. The, the wording, I didn't listen to it, but the wording that I read today from somebody else was that he didn't say they'd be a little more than $160. He said they'd be a little more than this other product that costs that price. So I thought that he didn't give a, my impression was he didn't give a number, but he said, you will pay more than you did for this other product. And people took that to mean you'll pay, you know, 30 or $40 more than this. That's not the way I remember it, but But if I'm wrong, it was the product in in reference was still about $165. Like I know that that's the reference point. The, the bottom line is this, the margin has to be at least 40% and charging you know, 200 over 125 would be 60%. That's a healthy, reasonable margin. Star City's price is higher than that. It's, a, you know, more than double. But Ben Blyweiss, the, you know, product, <clears throat> the sales manager at Star City's point was, but they're selling for even more than that on eBay. So why mm-hmm. should I underprice versus market 
price. Like Wizards, it sounds like Wizards is shipping less of these than they originally intended, probably because the printer that handles them uh, couldn't get enough out of the door before COVID set in. Which means there's just less of these, at least for the short term. Like they, they may come back to this well and release some more to the vendors later on once <clears throat> if if they can get the presses up and running again. But there's going to be less of them, so it makes sense that that price is rising. And again, you're going to get another shot at these in boosters later. Yeah, that's and that's that's what really it really strikes me. It's just they're not they're they're not. <laughs> They're just plain old non-foil copies of Scalding Tyrants with different art. It's not even like it's remarkable art. Like there's nothing special about these and cards. You can complain that they put non-special cards in Secret Lair. That's honestly, that's a more reasonable complaint. Like why are you shipping me non-foil cards, versions of these and, cards? Like in and, this don't, product? and don't be that pointing fingers at MCG Finance because trust me, I'm not buying any of these i have zero intent no. of buying any of this because the price is always so hot already so high that the odds that i'm going to be able to flip it for any reasonable margin for me are low so that means they're getting bought by whales like the, the, the dudes like my dad who have well although his income is in question given the way that doctors bill in the u.s and how many people they can see right now but dudes like my dad that are relatively well off engineers programmers etc that don't that are not that might be part of like are getting a steady paycheck because they work for essential services are going to have their normal amounts of disposable income through this crisis and still be stuck at home. Those are the people that are going to be buying magic cards throughout this whole thing. And <clears throat> for sure he'll buy a set and he'll pay eBay price and he'll pay 400 or 450 for it. And he'll be fine with it and stick it in the closet. <clears throat> but the, the there, I have one final caveat. The one thing that, could end up being true that would be a bit of a fuck you to the community would be if they print them at mythic next time and not at rare <laughs> yeah I, I mean i don't see that coming but keep, keep in mind it's really hard to print a 80 or 90 dollar rare into even a master set because of because um, of what it does to the ev of the boxes yeah but their scalding turns are 57 dollars like that's that's expensive but that's the high end we've seen 50 or 60 dollar rares get put into master sets in the past missy rainforest is 65 by the looks of it is 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 missy is missy rainforest above scalding turn right now yeah Yeah. because because green blue cards have been so broken this year yeah pretty much okay um yeah so there you go i feel like we're preaching to the choir but just felt like we should comment on it um all right, James, it is now late. Where can our listeners find you? You can find me on Twitter at MTG Critic, as well as via my occasional articles on mtgprice.com. I'm also haunting the Pro Trader Discord all the time, helping out our members get the best value for their dollar. I am Travis Allen. I'm on Twitter at WizardBumpin, B-U-M-P-I-N, and I am here every week doing the podcast. I'd also like to remind our listeners to check out the mggprice.com Pro Trader service for just $7.99 a month or $79.99 per year. You can get early access to this podcast, fantastic articles by the best MGG finance minds in the business, and a super active Discord forum that will drive better returns in both paper and Magic Online, saving you money playing Magic the Gathering. And it's tough times. So if you feel like you want access, you need some help, maybe you're trying to sell some stuff off, 
You can hit me up for some free advice on Twitter. If you want to join the group, we might be able to arrange a discount. We will do what we can to help you folks out during this time of crisis. Okay. Once again, MTG Fast Finance is probably sponsored by Cool Stuff Inc., where you can find all sorts of cool, nerdy stuff in stock, including the best in Magic the Gathering singles, sealed product, and a plethora of other collectibles. Use the promo code FINANCE5 during checkout at CoolStuffInc.com to save 5% off your order. Support this podcast and support the global economy, which brings us to the episode end of episode 215. Uh, really glad to have Dan Fournier on. As always, a blast. James, it was a pleasure, and I will see you next week. Thank you, Travis. Thank you, Daniel. And we'll see you guys next week on another episode of MTG Fast Finance. Thank you.